Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk to Mustafa Akiol and Dr. Abdullah Ali. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Now, viewers will know that both gentlemen have been honoured guests before on Blogging Theology, and you can look them up uh, for yourself. Today, Dr. Ali and Mustafa will be engaging in a civil discussion about Mustafa's latest book, entitled Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom and Tolerance, and Dr. Ali's rather critical review of it, which was published online. And Mustafa then wrote a further response to that critical review, also available online. To begin with, I will briefly mention our guests' profiles. Uh, Mustafa Akiol is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, where he focuses on the intersection of public policy, Islam and modernity. He has also been a frequent opinion writer for the New York Times, covering politics and religion in the Muslim world. He is the author of, as we know, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom and Tolerance, published just last year. Also, he's an author of Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty, published in 2021, and The Islamic Jesus, How the King of the Jews Became a Prophet of the Muslims. Now, this is the book, and I highly recommend it, by the way, if you want to, uh, actually quite a scholarly introduction to an Islamic understanding of Jesus, published in 2017. And lastly, he wrote Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty published in 2011. Dr. Abdullah Ali is a scholar of Islamic law with field specialities in Islamic theology, as well as race and blackness studies in Muslim history. His research interests include the interconnection between law and identity formation, comparative Islamic law, and Islam's role in the modern world. At Zaytuna College in California, Dr. Ali teaches jurisprudential principles, family law, inheritance law, commercial law, prophetic tradition, creedal theology, and Islamic virtue ethics. So the book under discussion today is Mustafa's Reopening Muslim Minds. And I just want to read a review on the Cato Institute website, which summarizes Mustafa's book, which we'll be, which we'll be discussing today. And here it is, quote, in Reopening Muslim Minds, Mustafa Akiol diagnoses the crisis of Islam, in inverted commas, in the modern world and offers a way forward, diving deeply into Islamic theology and also sharing lessons from his own life story. He reveals how Muslims lost the universalism that made them a great civilization in their earlier centuries. He especially demonstrates how values often associated with the Western Enlightenment, freedom, reason, tolerance, and an appreciation of science had Islamic counterparts, which sadly were cast aside in favor of more dogmatic views, often for political ends. Elucidating complex ideas with engaging prose and storytelling Reopening Muslim Minds borrows lost visions from medieval Muslim thinkers such as Ibn Rushd, also known in the West as Avarez, to offer a new Muslim worldview on a range of sensitive issues, human rights, equality for women, 
freedom of religion or freedom from religion. While frankly acknowledging the problems in the world of Islam today, Akil offers a clear and hopeful vision for its future. End quote. So that's the review on the Cato Institute website of Mustafa's book. So here we go. Dr. Ali, you wrote a quite devastating, and that's not an overstatement, devastating review of opening Muslim minds. Can you share with us your main points of contention and disagreement? Bismillah. Um, first and foremost, I just, once again, just like to thank you, Paul, uh, for um, giving us an opportunity to have this conversation publicly. And, and actually, before speaking about my contentions, I guess in my main contention with the book, I, I wanted to, um, to humanize, right, the author, right? And that was one of the reasons why I was really open to this discussion. And um, often, quite often in um, online exchanges, especially when people come with controversial ideas, uh, that, you know, there's a, ten there's a tendency for them to be maligned. And, and, and what people don't know is that uh, Mustafa and I, we work closely on a regular basis. You know, we actually both uh, are connected uh, with the um, Acton Institute. He, he chairs a monthly uh, meeting um, uh, when we, we were in, the scholars are invited uh, to speak about their books and we engage with their scholarship, you know. So Mustafa, um, you know, he has, uh, he's a very personable, very congenial person, right, you know, and um, and and he his character, um, um, you know, and his his decorum is is he's he's shown me uh, great respect, right? You know, and I wanted that to be very clear to everyone that my particular critique of his work is not um, an attack on his person per se, right? You know, that this is really more about you know um, working through some very complicated issues, right? And of course, he is. Um, written the book and it's, it's caused uh, a lot of, of course, um, um, conversation, right? Which is a is a good thing, a sign that there's something good about the book, uh, and it's not something which uh, one person should just simply sort of say just throw it trash. It was it wasn't really a waste of ink, you know. There's a lot to learn from most of this book. And I wanted that to be clear from the very beginning that this is not about. Um, about attacking him as a person and people should um, not not do that. Um, and there are many areas where we do agree. And I would say that some of the few, the, 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 the uh, important areas where we do agree is that the both of us are concerned with uh, promoting an atmosphere where uh, people have the freedom to think and to follow their conscience. Um, uh, that uh, I think that's probably what sort of brought him, brought us together, or one of the reasons that he reached out to me to join him in his efforts, um, uh, working with uh, the Acton Institute. Um, and um, uh, I also agree uh, with Mustafa that uh, Muslim jurists have, uh, over the centuries, and and perhaps even especially today. Uh, have become uh, very hyper legalistic, right? You know about the tradition, you know, and there is an, there is an uh, it is extremely important, uh, in my view, for us to consider like um, more than the text. Uh, quite often, especially in those more uh, significant areas like uh, matters related to 
um, um, apostasy, blasphemy, and, you know, and in particular uh, matters related to Takir, where people's lives are actually uh, at risk right, of being taken uh, according to traditional uh, teaching, right? You know, and, 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 and that would mean as well that I'd agree that there has been a problem of ossification in our in our in Islamic history, um, and 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 one one point I'll just make before I even move on. I want to move and re actually read from my my review, um, but I did want to make a point which is related to something that Mustafa he criticized me for is that um, I, I I I do accept the decline thesis. You know, I he claims that I uh, that I or at least gives the impression in his response to me that. Uh, that I um, I deny the sort of the declining thesis and and um, and also uh, but and also goes and claims that that I uh, that I'm actually simply regurgitating the uh, you know the Orientalist viewpoint that it was Ghazali who's responsible for that which is not actually uh, what I said it's, it's, it was you know so I w- wasn't mischaracterizing anything in that particular in that particular regard. Um, I, I think that, so when we talk about, we can talk about the things we agree upon, but also um, uh, I think that one of the things that sticks out when you listen to Muslims speak is that uh, at times you get the impression that um, Islam can be reduced to a single verse, you know, and that verse is that there's compulsion in religion, as if to say that that's the only thing that is important. I think that uh, that we do, although we do share some common interests with respect to freedom of conscience and thought and things like that, you know, that uh, I, uh, I, there are definitely some nuance uh, with respect to our disagreements on those, on those on certain points, and hopefully they'll come out during this conversation. Um, my major concerns with this book uh, relate to, uh, one, his over, the overbroadness of his critique, right? Um, I'm... Um, uh, I'm an individual. I'm uh, uh, somewhat of, of, of a. Uh, I'm peeved, I guess you say, by oversimplification of very complicated uh, issues. Or, you know, so, for instance, to say that uh, the reason that Muslims the decline occurred, it was all because of theology of the Ashari uh, sort of mm-hmm. brand, right? That that in itself alone was the was the cause by itself. Right. You know, the, the single factor causation is something which I think um, pretty much uh, doesn't use often stand. You know, it's, it, you know, when you when you put it to test, right, it doesn't really uh, really um, um, uh, uh, pass the test you know, that is that is given in order to um, to to prove uh, the claims about them. You know, so uh, so, for instance, often he might mention, uh, for instance, certain Ashadi scholars right, in his book. And say that this scholar had this viewpoint at that point about science or this other thing, uh, but he never shows um, how the, the opinion of that scholar influenced the the larger um, uh, uh, creedal um, stream of of Ashari, uh, theology, for instance. You know, the, or show that other scholars adopted those viewpoints. You know, which were anti-science, etc. Right. Um, uh, I also think that uh, so, I, uh, Dr. Yeah. Just, just to clarify for the for the viewers yeah. that, that the issue here being, and I'm not in any way saying Mustafa is saying this, but the issue here is that there has been a perhaps a, a palpable decline uh, in scientific endeavor and discoveries and activity yeah. in the Muslim world in the last in the recent centuries, and this sometimes is attributed 
to certain events in the intellectual past, uh, uh, figures associated with Al-Ghazali, for example, the Ashari school, which allegedly had a retarding influence or effect. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, the onward march of progress and science discovery, which was then taken up by Western societies later on with such incredible, uh, powerful effect. And, and obviously, we're all in agreement that there has been some slowing down of this scientific enterprise in the Muslim world. But the reasons why, you know, the causes of it, and you're saying it's very complex, there are multifaceted right. reasons and there are various uh, issues at stake. And I, I, Mustafa right. can speak for himself, of course, but this is the, the bone of contention here. What caused this alleged decline relative to the West in yeah. scientific discoveries and so on. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think this idea that you sort of just put it on theology, the theology itself is someone believes one thing that that itself is a direct uh, causal link between action or inaction, right? You know, that because I believe one thing doesn't necessarily mean that is going to make me not do something or do something necessarily because and, and not every point of creed um, is intended uh, for um, or, or, does, or not every point of creed has some particular uh, connection to uh, action in the world, you know. And so this is one of the, the things I, I highlighted in my critique where I mentioned that, for instance, one example would be, okay, is believing uh, that uh, the, the, the angel of death, is, the name of the angel of death is Israel, you know, has no direct impact on our lives in the world, or for me to believe that that God has is all powerful, right, and that God's uh, will is um, is the uh, sort of abs- is absolute, right? Doesn't itself, or that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala knows things before they happen, doesn't necessarily mean that I won't or I, I I won't strive to do anything that is that is useful, beneficial, right? You see? So I think so. So again, there's a single cause. Single cause, single factor causation, like I like to call it, you know, that that in itself, I think, is is the, the major problem. Now, now, another issue I would say is that I think, um, you know, that way I, I, I'm very critical of Mustafa for is, is it seems that he often doesn't have the desire to really win over uh, those people he would classify as, as the, the gatekeepers. Right. You know, and I think that this is the larger issue because. I think that his project is a good project overall. I mean, the idea of, okay, we want to promote uh, more um, uh, dialogue, dialectic. We want uh, free society. We want um, a, a, a society where people are free to follow their conscience, right? Uh, but at the same time, it seems that he's less interested and actually um, really um doing the work that's actually going to cause that type of revolution, at least among Muslim thinkers, right? You know, so, so, so to come out to attack the entire, not saying that, you know, you can't attack the Ashadis. Sure, you can, right? You know, you can attack the Ashadis. You can crit- criticize the Ashadis. I'm critical of Ashadis, you know, and, and, and I want to be, be clear here too, is that 
my writing, what I, my, what I wrote has far less to do with me being an Ash'ari or being uh, acting as an ideologue, right? That's, it's not so much about that, right? Because I, I, I actually depart from Ash'arism on certain, certain points, right? But, but it just fundamentally is about making sure that people's views are properly uh, presented, right? Um, uh, first and foremost, and then, and, and, and then, and then also being, having some concern with actually changing the status quo, right? You know, and, and, and it's hard to tell if, if Musafa um, actually is, is really concerned with that, right? You know, as, as opposed to, you know, again, um, you know, whatever personal sort of endeavors that, uh, that he has for himself, right? Um, and, and he wants to be taken seriously and, and this is again, you know, and I, I want to give Musafa a chance to speak, and, and, and but I also eventually want to come to the actual, like I said, the review. I want to read some things from it, uh, but but I think that uh, like Musafa, uh, like one one type of response that he, and I think is a valid response in certain regards, you know, with respect to me, right? His critique of me. So he say, says, okay, well, uh, I you know call many of the things that he has stated in his book is absurd or. Or this or that, uh, while he himself, listen, I'm just simply, um, I'm just quoting scholars, right? You know, it's not as if like I just made these things up, mm -hmm. right? And and I think that that there's there's a this it's a bit of a contradiction here because on one hand, he wants to be taken seriously as an independent thinker and scholar, uh, while simultaneously taking refuge and uncritical emulation of others, right? When, of course, perhaps when he's so pressured, put, put in the corner. In other words, um, if I read in your book an opinion, right, even if you, you know, you, you, you say, okay, I was convinced or persuaded by this scholar, that scholar, um, that this is your independent scholarship, right? So if I, if I criticize you, then you have to own it yourself, right? You know, you can say, okay, yeah, I got this idea from this person. It's fine, right? We get ideas from all types of people throughout, you know, human history, right? You know, so so we can't have it both ways. It has to be okay. So if I criticize you for an opinion, right? Or I, I'm assuming that this is your scholarship, right? Uh, so 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 fundamentally, uh, um, um, I think that we should own, right, what we write. Right. Rather than sort of just say, OK, OK, well, someone, so and so this person said this and that's, you know, so uh, yeah, that's that, that's I'm just sort of quoting or sort of transmitting information. Right. Um, which uh, agrees with someone else. And anything. so it's not as if I'm like sort of the the author of that. I say, well, whether or not I don't think really think it matters if you're the author of the opinion. What's important is that you've embraced it and you yourself have decided to represent that opinion publicly. Uh, and so uh, those scholars that you quote are not the ones writing for the New York Times or those who are, uh, you know, selling bestsellers and, and being sort of invited to participate in many uh, circles uh, among non-Muslim uh, audiences, right? You know, and so, so, so and, and so I'll say this the last thing I'll say for now is that I, that I would say that uh, the, the, the concern for me, or rather the why, part of the why that I decided to write this review had one to do with uh, the fact that I know Mustafa, right, you know, and, and so, of course, when his book was released, you know, the, I received a copy of the book, and so naturally I'm going to read something, I'm, I'm interacting with someone on a regular basis, it's not so much I'm trying to pick on Mustafa, right, uh, and but then, excuse me, then two, understanding that 
that Mustafa is involved in, we can call Dawah, right? Because he has a very, um, uh, most of his audience, I would assume, is a non-Muslim audience, right? You know, and so all of us should be concerned with an accurate portrayal of Islam, right? Especially if that portrayal is demonizing a certain group of Muslims, right? You know, I think that that itself is a problem. And it takes me back to um, a particular meeting I went to about a decade ago in D.C., uh, where which was attended by um, members of um, you know um, um, you know the, the U.S. government, uh, Department of Defense, uh, West Point, and people like that. And there were there was a one particular Muslim individual who was presenting about religious freedom, Islamic religious freedom, and he fundamentally he basically just said that okay, the only group right among the Muslims who believe that apostates should be killed uh, are the Salafis, right? And I was and I was there with a scholar from Australia, Abdullah, Dr. Abdullah Saeed, you know, and we just looked at one another. We're like, you know, <laughs> you know, when, where did that come from? You know, it's like we know that classically the classical position. And again, we can talk about whether or not, you know, people should be killed or not for apostasy. But to present things in that fashion at a, a meeting of people who are high up in the military and the government. Right. Uh, um, who then make decisions about whether or not to go to war and who to target, right? And then we, vow, and we make that easy for them, you know? And I'm not saying that this is what Musaf is doing, you know, but I'm saying, but he's definitely has the ear of many people who, uh, who are very influential, right, in that particular regard. And so these are some of the reasons that I decided to, to write this, you know? So I'm sorry to uh, sort of go on for so long, but eventually I'll come back to it. I wanted to read some things from my introduction uh, inshallah, to to clarify some some points, I think were misunderstood, as understood um, uh, or mischaracterized uh, by Mustafa in his response as well. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ali, for that. Uh, Mustafa, your 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 contribution. Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, and uh, thank you for bringing us together. And uh, thanks to Dr. Ali for you know uh, coming together and for his kind words as well. I mean, we we obviously disagreed a lot, you know, in these recent uh, articles that he wrote and I wrote. Uh, I understand that, but uh, it's important that we respect each other as human beings, as fellow Muslims, as and I respect his scholarship as well intentioned. I have no doubt about that. Uh, so it's, uh, I would recommend everybody, if uh, you know, to take a time to read Dr. Ali's critique and my response too. So I think I, I will put them in. That's a very good point. I will put both links uh, to, to both articles in the description below, so people can read uh, for themselves. And of course, your book is is very much available on most platforms online as well. Yeah, thank you so much. And mine is on Academia. I do. His, his is on, I think, the Journal of Islamic Philosophy, so they can be both found. Yeah. And uh, just one thing, there were also criticisms or accusations of some inaccuracies or some technical or like knowledge, wrong information. And I think I cleared that out in the response. So I just would like to put that aside for a second. But in terms of the argumentation, hmm. um, uh, Dr. Ali said certain things. Let me, I mean, let me begin with this. We can all praise the Islamic civilization, and I do, and the Islamic heritage, right? I mean, I don't always come out as a criticism of certain things in Islam, especially when I speak to Western audiences if that, since that was brought up. One of the things I often say is that while we Muslims had more religious freedom than Christendom for at least a thousand years, Jews were escaping from Spain to Ottoman Empire, or from they were preferring Islamic conquest to Christian rule. I mean, well, a lot of the things, I mean, I write in the New York Times, one of the articles recently was like, 
who is their favorite of Arabic numerals? I said, well, Arabic numerals came to the West from the Arab world. So there are a lot of things about the Islamic civilization and Islamic heritage that I praise. And I, I put that very clearly. So I'm not always criticizing things that are out there. Actually, uh, one of the questions I bring is, while we had this brilliant civilization that was more free, more tolerant, more diverse, more creative, than uh, the rest of the world, including Christian Europe, especially, what happened? You know, what went wrong in the past few years? I mean, some people will say that question in itself is wrong, nothing went wrong. Or some people will say only what went wrong is Western colonialism that came and destroyed things. Of course, we have every reason to condemn Western colonialism and uh, still oppose any new colonial project. I'm totally with the people who criticize colonialism there. But I think we have had internal problems as well. And what was that? You know, I think every thoughtful Muslim should think about this. And I, I know Dr. Ali is, is thinking about this. I've read articles in Renovatio and Zaytuna uh, College magazine, which actually say something very important, I mean, on these issues. So I, even I quoted them recently by colleagues of Dr. Ali as well. Uh, so, and, so let me put that. I mean, that's where I'm coming from. Second, uh, do I explain the problems of the Muslim world by a single factor? Like one problem, that's the Ashari theology. Even Al-Ghazali himself, although Ghazali is actually in many ways more sophisticated than the overall Ashari, earlier Ashari theology, at least, you know, I mean, people obsess pro or against Ghazali. I don't do that in this book. Uh, I don't. I mean, in my earlier book, Islam Without Extremes, I spoke about the change of the world trade routes, you know, with the Cape of Hope that empowered the Middle East. So world trade rules change. I mean, that Fernand Brodel, Ferdinand Brodel wrote about this, the great historian of the uh, Mediterranean. That had a big negative impact on the Muslim world. That had nothing to do with our theology. That had something to do with the world and the discovery and the plunder of Americas by Europe. So there are a lot of world factors that influence things. So I'm not putting things into one factor. Plus, I would, you know, my old, older book, earlier book also, I spoke about just a despotic rule in the Muslim world, I mean, autocratic states, which was allowed by the topography of the Middle East, which allowed sweeping conquest from one end to another. So there are many things to say. These are the reasons why the Muslim world is maybe not in a good shape in the past few centuries. And there are the other things. I'm not just tying everything to theology. But, there, but theology is important, I also think. And I believe there has been a certain closing of minds in terms of refusing to engage with ideas that come from other civilizations, uh, especially on an ethical level, because the existing theology and the jurisprudence that it, it's, it's ultimately built was in, in such a way which, which, which would refuse to have this engagement. Before that, Muslims were engaging. I mean, we all know that Muslims studied Aristotle, Plato, Greek philosophy. I mean, they didn't say these are kuffar whose ideas don't matter. I mean, Dr. Ali mentioned virtue ethics. It came from Aristotle. Uh, today, I mean, ask some Muslim about, I mean, Kantian philosophy. I will say that's kuffar. I mean, who cares about what he says? I'm not saying it because I'm a Kantian or anything, but this refuse, refuse, refusal to engage. So uh, that is, I think, something that has happened. Uh, death of philosophy, philosophy as an independent discipline, as something independent from religion. I mean, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf says this has happened in the Islamic world. I mean, here's a long article that I quoted, and this had something to do. So certain things happened, and I think we lost the 
creativity and also pluralism. Uh, I think Islamic, when you look at Islamic schools of thought, you see more diversity in the beginning and more, you know, standardization and gradual, like a more homogenization of Islamic thought over time. So in the book, I try to get into these issues. And of course, I rely, I mean, I have my own research and my own ar arguments. Yes, but I rely on the works of scholars because like it's impossible to cover like such a great story without getting into, for example, I mean, Dr. Ali said, I mean, you rely on scholars, you own what you write. I mean, for example, on one issue, I discuss whether Ibn Rushd, Avero, uh, as you know, known in the West, in Bidayat al-Mujtahid, whether he had views that favor women's rights or not. And Dr. Ali took an issue with that. And I said, well, I relied on this, on the works of Katarina Bello and other scholars, some Arab scholars as well. Yet yeah, in some issues, because it's such a huge topic, I relied on the expertise of certain scholars and quoted that their work. Or Dr. Ali brought the issue of like communalist school. I mean, I said there was a more universalistic school in Islam and there was the more communalistic school. Well, this is the work of Turkish professor Recep Şentürk, who's head of a university in Turkey now. He's a, I think he, he comes from theological background. And yes, I referred to that work and I looked into that work and there's a lot. So I referred to that scholar when I was responding to you to say that, well, I, I'm relying to this very detailed study on this. And that study confirms what I'm saying here, here and there. So I'm referring to that. So I just want to say that why I sometimes relied on the scholar works of other scholars, because I cover huge topics from the abolition of slavery in the Muslim world. How did that happen to issues of Mutezla and Asharites and, and, and so on and so forth. Another thing, uh, I don't think I attack Asharism. I criticize Asharism. And uh, compared to how some of the Asharites attacked the Mutazila, for example, I mean, I'm not calling them Ahl al-Bidah or heretics or anything like that. That's mainstream Islamic theology. And I'm actually even calling for Asharites to look into, classical Asharite scholars, to look into the heritage and the history and what it brought us, and to maybe rethink certain things. I mean, in my response to you, I quoted... Uh, Al Raisuni, like who's a scholar from Morocco, uh, he's Maliki, and I think he's Ashari himself. And he wrote this book on Makassid for the IIIT, International Institute of Islamic Thought. And he says the Asharites, just to oppose the Mutezila, insisted that you know there are no moral values in acts other than the uh, other than that is established by the Sharia, and they just continued this for centuries. This was a mistake. We should apologize for this mistake. I mean, that's what he's saying. Well, I would welcome this new Asherism if you want, because what I want to introduce is the idea that... Now, he, uh, let me bring, uh, come to that point. Ooh, or before that, one thing that uh, Dr. Ali said, did, do I say that, you know, la ikraha fiddin, or there's no compulsion, is all, you know, Islam is all about. Of course, Islam is not just about a principle of non-coercion. Islam is a faith, a teaching about God, about afterlife, about ethics. There, there, there's a whole sweeping, uh, like it's, there's a whole body of areas. In every area of human life, Islam has a teaching. I have emphasized La Ikra Hafiddin, uh, verse in Bakr 256, as many Muslim scholars have done in the past few centuries, just to address these issues of religious freedom that we are addressing in the Muslim world. And I, uh, and actually, when you say just and there is no compulsion in religion, what does it mean, right? I mean, there is all these different interpretations of this. So actually, the chapter in my, the opening chapter of my book, 
uh, tells a story of how I was actually arrested in Malaysia by the religion police for actually quoting La Ikrafid Din in a, a conference and arguing on the issue of apostasy. And Dr. Ali is right. I mean, uh, uh, the idea that apostasy is a criminalized, is, is a capital crime is not just in the Salafi tradition, it's all the, all the Sunni tradition, although the Hanafis... But Mr. Mr. Sorry, Mr. Yeah. can I just interrupt? Sorry, I uh, interrupt your sure. valuable exposition there. Well, you say you were arrested, uh, that's shocking enough, but what, what happened subsequently? Were you just released and an apology issued or were you charged? Or Because it sounds like, uh, to Westerners, it sounds very, very odd that you should be arrested for defending religious freedom. Oh, it's a nice arrest. It just went for 18 hours, so it was not too bad. So it wasn't <laughs> dramatic. But uh, it was a lot. It was made possible. Uh, I mean, I would let go probably because there was some high-level diplomacy I mentioned in the book. So right. Turkey's former president, Abdullah Gül, you know, kindly on my behalf, called the monarchy, the ruling uh, sultan in Malaysia. So that, that, that th- called things out. But the, the very short story is that I had given this lecture in Kuala Lumpur on religious freedom and on apostasy. And I didn't give any fatwa. I, I'm not a mufti. I don't claim any religious authority. But I said, well, Muslim scholars have been discussing these and there are these new interpretations. Ridda or apostasy, as it was defined in classical Islam, is not maybe exactly what we think as a religion today. It had a strong con- connotation of treason, political treason as well. So uh, we should not consider this as a crime. People should be left to their conscience. Religion cannot be policed, then let's take that approach of the Quran. And there's no basis for apostasy ban, of course, in the Quran or blasphemy as well. So I made these arguments. And, uh, well, uh, in, in Malaysia, when they write like, uh, there is no compulsion in religion, they put a few words in parentheses. Oh. It says, there is no compulsion in religion while entering Islam. So that is not in the worst, but that parentheses is added there. And some translations are there. Uh, printed in Saudi Arabia, Sahih International does the same insertion as well. Why do they make this insertion? Well, there's a huge, of course, exegesis behind that, because in classical jurisprudence, that is uh, the interpretation of Sharia, uh, there is no compulsion in religion, was understood almost always only as not forcing the Ahlal Kitab, the Jews and Christians, into Islam. So they were allowed to remain in their religion. Yeah. But this was, not, this was not taken as something broader than that, which is, oh, people can leave Islam if they want to, right? I mean, if they don't believe in it. So no, because apostasy was a crime. Yeah. Uh, and there were, or also hispa, the idea of religious policing. Like the, we have in our jurisprudence verdicts, like if someone gives up prayer, daily prayer, what do you do with this, right? There are punishments for this. Humbalis even give the death punishment, death punishment. So... My book actually discusses these issues a lot as well. The Hisp, there's a whole chapter on Hispa and what you call religious policing. And I think these are not Quranic, and I understand there was a histor- history behind it, but they are today not pe- making people more pious, but maybe only more hypocritical, and they're not even helping our faith as well. So anyway, that's why I'm not just speaking of Laik Rafidin, but that is a very important maxim, a value, that I find in the Quran when it comes to matters of religious freedom. There are other verses as well, to you or religion to me mine, or there are various verses uh, revealed in Mecca, which are tradition considered, the Asharite tradition considered as abrogated, of course, by 
the uh, later verses in Medina with, uh, about war with the people of the book or, or with the polytheists. So my book goes over all these discussions. Was abrogation necessarily really the, the right way to understand were there people who oppose abrogation? Yeah, a Mutezla scholar opposed it. Uh, Isfahani opposed it. So it goes over this evolution of Islamic thought. And basically, I, I, I criticize Asharism on a few doctrines. And I think that's the most important thing, uh, probably, uh, in the book that uh, is relevant to this discussion. On the matter of husun kubu, as we would call it in Islamic tradition, good and bad. There was this theological, known as Yudhufra dilemma in the philosophical world, whether the sharia indicates what is right and wrong or constitutes what is right and wrong. Like the, the divine law, the divine commandment revelation, does it educate us about objective values that are out there in the world, in the nature of things that people can have access to reason as well? Or are there no values before revelation? Revelation constitutes these values. And Asharism, there were nuances over time, but by and large, the Asharite position was to insist that beyond the Sharia and before the Sharia, there's no ethical value, right? Murder is wrong because God said so. Not, not that God says do not kill because it is wrong in itself. It becomes wrong because God said so. And this, this theological uh, approach known as divine command theory or voluntarism you know, in theology, <clears throat> it influenced, uh, I mean, it brought us what Dr. Ali says, legalism, this textualism, or you said, I think, referring to the, I mean, you see the problem there, but I, I find the root of that problem in this voluntarism. And yes, I rely on the works of scholars. Fazlur Rahman Malik made this argument, while Halak makes this argument in his book. And these are authorities, because I mean, I, I have to rely on people who say these arguments, but I show also, demonstrate how this thinking works, why it doesn't allow Makassid to become something like a natural law of philosophy, why it still is very textualist, and why it refuses to understand that revelation had a context and, and we can infer a value out of that and, you know, reinterpret that in, the, in a different context. But this, whole, this whole subject, by the way, you, you've just described is a, a central feature, I think, of, of uh, Dr. Ali's uh, critique and your response to it. And it is quite technically in parts. And it reminds me of a lot of, of a parallel, similar discussions in Western uh, non-Muslim theology, actually, philosophical theology. This is not just a Muslim uh, concern. This is actually uh, in non-Muslim Western theology as well. Very familiar. If you, if you know Western theology, is a very familiar subject. Very familiar discussions and disagreements. It's been discussed in every every religious tradition. Uh, it's it's relevant for Judaism as well. So in, in 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 the Jewish tradition, there are people who discuss whether there's natural law in Judaism or not. I mean, I'm actually trying to follow those discussions as well. And this is actually a new discussion. A little bit. I mean, it's a re newly revived discussion in the Muslim world. I mean, uh, Ramon Harvey, that you actually had on your show, Paul, recently, uh, he wrote about Maturidi theology, and he makes similar criticisms to Asharism in, in his book as well, and I think it's important. And he calls for a decoupling of Maturidism from the Asharite theology, because they were you know, coupled together with the heavy influence of Asharism in the medieval Islam. In Turkey, there's a whole Maturidism industry, if I sometimes call it, sometimes too much, you know, in a kind of a nationalistic way, because the Ottomans were Maturi, we are Maturi, there's a lot of emphasis on that. But I mean, these disc discussions are brought in and I will appreciate, you know, more nuance. And, you know, if there is a mistake I did, I'll be happy to see that and have a conversation about that, even correct things. But 
These are also the, I think, issues that the average Muslim doesn't know that much. Ask the issue of Husn Kubuch. You know, we don't know that, but I think this is a very important issue. And I want to open these discussions to the common reader. And is it mostly non-Muslims? Honestly, most of my, most of my readers are Muslims. I mean, but I think I got a lot of response from Muslims who are in Malaysia, in Pakistan, in Indonesia, in English-speaking languages, countries where, you know, you have a, a lot of people who are seeing issues with Islam. On blasphemy laws, I've written a lot about it in Pakistan, and the people who appreciate it are Pakistani Muslims who really think that what's happening in that country in the name of punishing blasphemy is really a shame. It's, it doesn't bring any honor to Islam, but it really hurts just innocent people. So that's why I want to, I mean, I do speak about to non-Muslim audiences as well. I've written in the New York Times. That's mostly a, largely, uh, I never criticize Asherism in the New York Times, by the way, I should say that. I just try to offer issues uh, of, you know, human rights and freedom. I mean, like, on issues of blasphemy laws or uh, loses freedom. I try to offer perspectives within Islam, with actually, uh, which will give some perspective to people which think that Islam is monolithic and it's defined only by people who do, uh, who, who practice violence or coercion in its name. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that, Mustafa. Dr. Ali. Yeah, I wanted to, before, I, there's some issues I definitely want to speak to, um, uh, but uh, I, I did want to first uh, do what I promised that I would do. I wanted to read a few paragraphs from my, uh, the start of my, uh, my review. And uh, of course, I'll comment as I go through it because I wanted to highlight uh, certain important um, issues here. Uh, so I begin by saying Mustafa Akio's reopening Muslim minds offers a tantalizing tale of a religious community in crisis, its causes, and suggested remedies for recovering from its intellectual malaise. Akio asks, why did Muslim civilization fall behind the West? His answer is simple. Muslims fell behind the West and had failed to contribute anything major to science since Islam's golden age um, from the 7th to the 13th century due to anti-intellectual forces among the Sunni Orthodox. The main culprits were Ashari, Ashari theologians who opposed Mu'tazili rationalism and their promulgation of voluntarism, fideism, and occasionalism. Accordingly, this mindset found its greatest champion in Abu Hamid al-Ghazadi, uh, whose assault on philosophy left a lasting impression and effectively paralyzed Islamic civilization. Akio's solution is a return to neo-Hellenistic neo philosophy as promoted by Mu'tazili rationalists and or the illuminating ideas of Ibn Rush. Um, uh, Ibn, Ibn Rush. Each granted reason, a moderating role in relation to revealed knowledge, unlike the Ashradi majority who allegedly promoted a literal interpretation of scripture while rejecting secondary, secondary causation, human freedom, and natural law. In Akio's view, a reappropriation of the legally relativistic doctrine of tolerance promoted by the historically maligned Murjis is warranted to help the community overcome their views on accusations of disbelief and the freedom of expression. Now, okay, so I read that paragraph, you know, I just want like, I wanted, before continuing, I wanted to know like, Mustafa, did you feel that that properly or improperly encapsulates your argument? It doesn't, I mean, it, it is maybe 70% accurate, if I may say, I can add mm -hmm. a few things there, but I actually objected the way you define it, because I mean, you put so much emphasis on Ghazali, which reminds the people of the classic. No, I only mentioned Ghazali once. Right. I mean, in the, 
you said, I mean, Ghazali's attack and all that. I, I don't do it. I don't actually put it that way. I do criticize Asharitism on in terms of its the way on jurisprudence because it's created a textualist textualist hermeneutic, as mm-hmm. Wael Hallak would say it, uh, which didn't allow the rise of natural law perspective and which didn't allow a contextualist interpretation. Uh, and it's still, I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, like, can women have equal inheritance, uh, equal share in inheritance, the classical Ashari, you know, uh, jurisprudence? But it's not just Ashari. Law. This is really all, all, all Muslim Sunni Shiites. It's not simply Ashariism, right? So that's, that's one of the main, um, main well, points. Well, because Ashariism defined what Sunnism is. I mean, Sunnism could yeah, but what about the Shiites? What about the Shiites? What about well, Shida, it's a very good question. Yeah. Similar problem. I mean, the Al-Reza Bohani has a very good book on that. Why, despite the fact that the Shiites actually had some Mutezla influence, that influence didn't influ- uh, that that influence didn't come to have an effect on their jurisprudence. And he shows why that is the case. And he actually argues uh, about uh-huh. that in Shiite jurisprudence. But at least in the Shiite tradition, philosophy had a more robust continuation. I think it's fair right, to say. Right, right, and, exactly. And I think, uh, and by the way, I'm not uh, calling Muslims to go back to Hellenistic philosophy. I'm not, I mean, there are still, I think, things well, to learn. Well, I'm just going to in this, in this Mutezilite uh, form, the Mutezilites were highly influenced by the Hellenistic philosophers, right? Yeah. Mutezilites were influenced by Hellenistic philosophy in terms of methods, but not in terms of necessarily all the doctrines. I mean, the philosopher were, I mean, the Mutezila scholar Al-Malahimi wrote a critique of uh, Ibn Sina and all those three issues that the Ghazali right. also criticized about. So Mutezilites right. were not necessarily philosopher. They, one thing about the Mutezila, people... Mutezla are known as a rationalist, right? Today, say that to a conservative Muslim, they would think, oh, probably they were not very religious. That's why they were into these secular. Mm-hmm. Mutezla were rationalists because they were giving dava to non-Muslims. Mutezla were trying to prove that Islam is compatible with independent reason as it is. So yeah, they but, they, but, say, saying, but they also studied non-Muslim doctrine, right? Or Muslim again, right? Yeah. So you understand. So so they were influenced by it, right? You know, and, and they utilized the same sort of tools, right? And exactly, and because, right, in order to right present Islam exactly because they were trying to make a case of Islam for someone who's not in it already, right? To right. say this is Islam, we believe it is one thing. That's what the Hanbalis would say. But right. Mutezlas were beginning from outside. They were saying, this is what reason demands. And they were coming back to say, and our religion is actually conforming to these demands of reason. So, right, yeah, were, but, I'm saying, but my basic point, my basic point was just that they were influenced by the Hellenistic um, philosophers. Right? Yes, but that's they had specified, point. like they were not defending uh, that God doesn't know particulars or that kind of doctrines that Ghazali, exactly. in my view, criticized. But right. I think Ghazali went too far in giving a takfir, so I would be critical yeah. of Ghazali there. No, but, but, and then, but this is another point, too. And, and again, I'm glad that we're sort of engaging this way, because this is really what I wanted to happen is that I want to go compare, you know, again, not the entire review, but there's a few paragraphs, you know, and that uh, Ghazali's major contention was with three points, right, of yes. actually theological concern with regard to philosophers. Yes. Ghazali was, was himself a philosopher. He wasn't like opposed, right, to, to philosophy in total, right? He was, uh, he I, was, I never argued that. Ghazali right, was... No, no, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't say you did. I didn't say you did, but I'm saying that, uh, but, but, but 
one can get that impression, right? You know, of course, the the Orientalist viewpoint about Ghazali and how he sort of undermined philosophy and things like that, you know, but but one was like this 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 position, this idea that God only knows particulars, only knows universals, but not particulars. Uh, another one was their uh, rejection of the physical resurrection right in hereafter. And the third issue with regard to their belief in the beginning be the beginninglessness of the of the universe, right? You know, the fact that yeah, it's, yeah. it has, Eternity of uh, the has no yeah. beginning, right? Yeah. So so on, on, on that basis when the Farabi Ibn Sirah embraced those things. So it's a, this is why this is where Hitikfir comes from. And I would say that that the problem is not so much the takfir, but the problem is is that when Ghazali says, you know, that these people could fought in his time, this fundamentally meant that people's blood was lawful, right? Right, you know. So, but again, but the idea that I can but Ghazali I can object also to something you say. I can object to something you say and say this is kufr, right? You know, I I do have every right to do that, right? Ghazali, in the last page of his book, they, I mean, it's a kind of a question to him. Uh, is this kufr and these people can be killed? And he said, yes. So, he, yeah. I mean, he, he says that. And yeah. Ghazali was more sophisticated than these anti-philosophy, you know, rigid. And he actually brought elements of philosophy within Sunni Islam, logic, appreciated mathematics. But the very fact that philosophy became a dirty word, even if Ghazali meant something more maybe nuanced, had an impact. That's one thing. Secondly, he brought this idea of clandestine apostasy, because I think to say that this, wrong, this doctrine is wrong is one thing. This is kufr is something else. Uh, because, I mean, uh, creation of the world. I mean, I believe in creation ex nihilo, and I think it's confirmed by the Big Bang Theory in the modern world. So Ghazali was right on that. Al-Kindi was, by the way, uh, as a philosopher, believed in uh, creation ex nihilo as well. But Ultimately, these are matters of interpretation. I mean, God's hands thrown, these are statements in the Quran, we take them allegorically. So how much of the Quran you take allegorically or not, none of them should, I think, become kufr. Whereas Ghazali, I think, brought this very damning verdict, which had a negative influence because it brought the idea of clandestine apostasy. You know, uh, this, I mean, that person claims to be a Muslim, but he's not. So that had a bad influence. But after Ghazali too, Ashari tradition, Mithrazi and Taftazani became very sophisticated and it went on, it became more philosophical over time. I understand that. Right. But certain Ashari doctrines were never given up. And this is one is the Husun Kubu issue, that the yeah. mind doesn't let, the mind doesn't understand, right? Uh, sharia uh, related, you know, the law related Husun Kubu out there, it's only legislated. And I think that has something to do with the uh, uh, suffocation or like the stagnation of our jurisprudence, as as many people think it has. No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, again, I think this is one of those areas where we definitely have agreed, have disagreed strongly upon it. I don't see again a direct um, um, causal link between uh, the uh, lack of progress scientifically and others uh, due to a belief that uh, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is the one who determines. What is haram was halal, right? You know, and because fundamentally, that's, that's, really that, what, that, that, that's fundamentally what the Ashari position boils down to is that you know that our morality originates from the Quran and the Sunnah. It doesn't originate from uh, independent uh, human uh, thought, right? That it that originates from the Quran and Sunnah. So, so if they believe that, it is it is pegged to the Scripture itself, right? You know, because because again, God has determined 
you know, certain things, you know, so they're reading the scripture is what led to that. Right. You know, and so, so me, but the Mutezilla also from the same scripture, uh, brought, had a whole different idea. They thought the scripture doesn't establish, but indicate right and wrong. So no, right we, wrong, we understand that there's a disagreement right between the, yeah. between the two camps, right. You know, they're both based yeah. on the Quran. I mean, these are very Quran centered and actually the Mutezilla. Oh, I think it's a little bit more than that. Mutezilla are very clear that it's not only based on the Quran. For them, the reason itself is an independent has independent authority, right? You know, but so that, but that has authority of reason yeah. is pointed by the Quran itself in the way they read it, and of course, Asharism. I mean, the the key the doctrines of Asharism. Many of them came from the Hadith rather than the Quran. So we should. I mean, the Asharites. Well, no, they came mainly from the from, it's right, mainly from the Quran, and this is one of the things my review may clarify. You know, quite often, and there's so many verses I can throw at you. If you if you if we were to list the number of verses that support Mutazidi thinking on this, and we compare it to the number of verses that that support Ashari thinking on this, the number of, of verses that that support Mutazidi thinking are are far <laughs> far fewer fewer than if anything, maybe one verse, right? You know, so it's like there's so many verses that have, that Clearly, well, that, that, that's a, that's a assertion. Let's oh, have a right. let's have a trial <laughs> on that. Send me the verses, and I will respond back. And maybe maybe on another sure. occasion we can have a we can have a, a trial by verse quoting like this proof texting uh, from the Quran. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, no, but, but, yeah. So, but Dr. Ali, do you want to continue? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so again. So, I wanted again. I wanted to be clear. Like I said, I asked Mustafa that question about again whether or not this properly uh, sort of. Um, um, characterizes right his argument you know of course like he he said that okay i put an emphasis on ghazali which i really don't put emphasis on because i just mentioned the fact that ghazali sort of like becomes a sort of this champion of this particular perspective right? you know so, so but it's very clear to me it's very clear that my summary nathan is make, saying that it's eshadism your critique is directed towards eshadism as a whole not only ghazali saying ghazali it didn't focus your book didn't focus on ghazali only it focused largely on uh, the issue of occasionalism, voluntarism, uh, et cetera, right? That that's really what your critique is, you know? So, but in your, your response to my review, you claimed that I mischaracterized your 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 view well, while, I mean, you, while, while while you while you mischaracterize my 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 you mischaracterize my you got it seventy percent right your, two your, things your I, I said you got seventy percent right two things I I didn't repair it the classical yeah. uh, actually ignorant criticism critique of uh, Ghazali I mean I myself on the side of Ibn Rushd for sure when it comes and yeah. Ibn Rushd said about Ghazali he was philosopher with the philosophers Asharite with the Asharites and Sufi the Sufis and where Ghazali went through through his career where he end up which I mean in in Mustasfa in his legal work uh, towards the end of his life you know he certainly asserts this idea of Husn Qubuh doesn't come from reason and only comes from revelation. So he certainly defended classical Asharite doctrines and established them. And I, that's, a, that's a view I'm critical of. And that's a view that the Mutezila would be critical of. Even the uh, Matridis would be, I think, critical of. So it's there. And I understand that we can talk, talk of the influence. Yeah. On, on, on occasionalism, uh, there are the, which is the, the negation of causation in nature. So I have a chapter on that. Uh, actually, there are discussions on whether Ghazali accepted um, secondary causation or not. How much of an occasionalist was he? These are actually. But, but Mustafa, just for the sake of sorry, just the sake of the audience who might not know, um, because this is quite high level stuff, and that's great. That's the point. But can you just briefly, if possible, summarize the doctrine of occasionalism? What will that mean? God's action in creation. What what is occasionalism? Just in case people aren't familiar with it. Sure. I mean, first of all, 
in, in classical Islam, both the Mutezula and the philosopher, the philosophers, accepted natural causation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, like, th- there's a sound here, I hit the pen with this, the other part of it, and sound comes up because there's natural causation between them. Or when you push an object, the billiards, you put the, push the ball, and they, so... so the cause and effect. Objects, objects have a, pot- a potential, you know, in them, which to influence each other. Uh, that's generally how most people perceive the world. But the uh, Asherite theology had a different view. They said, no, God, they, they don't have an effect like this. God recreates the world at every instant. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, a, I said, a computer game. Like in a computer game, you can think that you throw something, it goes, but actually the processor is, you know, recreating every yeah. scene at every time. Right. So the Asherites defended this view. Ghazali defends that, you know, in his famous example of cotton burning through fire, he says, what burns, when you bring cotton and fire, cotton burns, but act, what actually burns it, it's God wills it at the time, maybe through angels, maybe without angels, but, so there is this uh, insistence. Thank you. Now, yeah. Yeah, and, and actually, I would, I would add, let me add something here, because this is an important point here to, to highlight, is that, um, uh, that this is not a denial of the laws of physics, right? You know, this actually is just a theological matter. The question is, okay, well, uh, uh, you know, Allah created laws, right, for things, right? However, Inna. the creator, the one actually who brings things into existence, right, is the creator himself. Why And why, why do we say that? Because of what we understand from the Quran or what we understand from the Sunnah, right? Not, you know, just something independent of that, you know? So, so in other words, their position was that, that there are certain demands um, that are placed upon us, you know, as Muslims, when we read the scripture itself, you know, the things we expected to embrace, you know? So, but believing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates things at every moment itself uh, doesn't lead to fatalism. It doesn't lead to this idea that the human being no longer has will or de- uh, doesn't lead to this idea that responsibility has uh, has been sort of just just undermined, right, as a result of that. It's just it's simply saying, okay, well, I'm supposed to believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he himself is in control of those things, right, you know, uh, uh, but I ultimately, I'm held responsible for my choices, et cetera, right, and so so, 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 so it's more of a theological... That is different, and, that is fatalism. This is one yeah. of the points, one of the things I was criticizing uh, again and of course this is a this is a you know century centuries old debate right <laughs> right so so we're not going to resolve it right no. today or, or probably ever right you know but fundamentally again it's about probably probably presenting and understanding things you know uh, i don't see how i mean because this, this belief has been around for, for centuries even during islam's heyday right you know so so if it is not it's not as if like ashadism um uh had you know was 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 born you know, like right immediately before the Muslim de- decline, you know, the Eshadism, or at least these beliefs were already there prior to that, right? You see, so, but to say that because Muslims believe that God creates everything every moment, and so this is what disincentivized science, right? You know, and there's no evidence <laughs> of that, right? You know, that that is that is what disincentivized well, Let me say two things right? on that, please. Uh, I mean, Dr. Ali, you're referring to, first of all, two different things. One is Fatalism. I mean, occasionally when fatalism or predestinary. Well, no, I'm, yeah, again, I'm, I'm not saying that you said fatalism. I'm, I'm just saying that, they, but these all, all these ideas, they sort of they they come. They people connect those, you know, these these doctrines to occasionalism, right? You know, so, okay. On 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 fatalism, the idea that you know there's predestination and we are mm-hmm. not doing anything, we don't have authority. That is not an Ashari position. That's Jabriya. That is the compulsionism doctrine. 
That right, was promoted by the Umayyads for mm-hmm. because it helped their helped their political power. Because if you if people believe everything is predestined by by God, they obey the Sultan too. They don't ask questions. So Umayyads, well, I mean, it's debatable. I mean, of course, they could promote something, but it could still have roots in Islam, right? I mean, I think, and, and I think that this is again another one another oversimplification it was that, that I would, I would emboldened by criticize it is that. You know, governments, governments and tyrants will always appropriate doctrines that are going to uh, help them to reinforce their, yeah, their, their power, right? You know, during that, the that times, what they appropriated the was itself doesn't originate from Islam, right? It doesn't originate from Islam. I totally agree with that, but it is, I think... No, no, I didn't say that it doesn't. I said it doesn't mean that it doesn't, just because they appropriated it, right? doesn't mean that it does not originate from Islam, I mean, I don't think predestinarian. I mean, you can, of course, in the Quran, you can find verses heading towards predestinarianism or like you can find verses that you can think as a basis of predestination. You can find verses as a basis of free will. But we know the free will predestination debate in early Islam, actually the first debate between the Qadarites and the Jabriya. The Qadarites are the proto-Mutazila. They defended free will and Jabriya. They, they were pure compulsions. They said humans have no free will. Everything is predestined by God. We know that the Umayyad Sultanate uh, supported the Jabriya doctrine, the uh, fatalist doctrine, because it helped them politically. And they executed prominent Qadarite scholars. These are scholars who defended the idea that humans have free will, which was ultimately the view that was uh, going to evolve into the Mutezla. But that's not about science. That's about maybe human disposition towards authority or power. And I think I don't blame Asharism for being Jabriya. That's new, because Asharites brought the idea of Kesp, right? I mean, yes, there's predestination, but there's human, uh, there's human acquisition of certain. No, but see, see yeah, I understand. Yeah, see, I think that's again, but was it's you, you constantly say like the Asharites brought that. Yeah, sure, the Asharites brought it, but it, it, let's let's be clear that the Asharites didn't just sort of make something out, out of thin air, right? You understand the Asharites are reading scripture, right? And they're and they're looking at words and they say, well, what word does God use to describe human action? Right. So it's not just simply, OK, well, hey, well, we we you know, we don't we don't like what we see in the Quran or we think there's something um, another another source beyond an extra Quranic source that we can utilize in order to define our morality. Right. Right. Or to define reality. Right. Yeah. So 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 it's, it's, it, I think we need to be very clear there. Right. About this. Everybody's reading scripture. You and I are reading scripture. A militant out there is reading scripture. Probably right. our predisp- predispositions yeah. influence the way we read scripture. That's why I think it was not an accident that the Mutazila thrived in the urban cities of Iraq, Basra and Kufa and then later Baghdad, whereas uh, I mean, the Khawarij came from the, you know, tribes of the desert. You know, they were more communitarian and they were more rigid and so on and so forth. And even there is a difference between the Arab and Mawali. I think the Arabs and non-Muslim Arabs, sorry, non-Arab Muslims in, in the early centuries, most Mutezila were had Persian backgrounds. So they, they had a different mindset, maybe a more philosophical background from where they came from, and Arabs were different. So, I mean, these things exist. It's not a right. Turks, my origins, they didn't know any philosophy. They came as a military power. So they just had a lot of military element, but not too much intellectualism, at least in the beginning. You know, that, I agree with that, yeah. During mm-hmm. the Ottoman times, it changed. So uh, everybody read the scripture, but came to different things. Now, on occasionalism, mm-hmm. I have a chapter on this, and you criticize that as well. Well, I do show a few examples that, occasionalist thinking hindered a scientific approach to things. One is the La Adwa 
hadiths that you would know and the discussions. Uh, Paul, this was a discussion. This yeah, I was going to say, can you explain? Place, yeah, if you explain yeah. to us what the hadith is. During this happened during the Black Death. You know, there was this big wave of uh, contagion. Uh, I mean, it was worse than COVID. You know what people went through. I mean, like uh, one third of Europe was uh, devastated, and Muslim world was hit by as well. And so it was a contagious disease that was killing people. But there is a hadith. Actually, there are different hadiths on this, and there are hadiths which show that there are contagious diseases. There are hadiths showing, suggesting that there is no contagion. And one famous statement, a hadith, is, and I don't, whenever I say hadith, I don't mean it is certainly the word of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. It's the reported, you know, word, which can be 100% accurate or not, depending on the yeah. uh, strength on that. And I, and I come from a tradition that is a little bit more skeptical um, than the, maybe the mainstream uh, on the chain of transmitters and all that. But uh, there's this hadith which says, la adwa. No contagion, right? It's translated like that. It's still, you can find it in, in classical. I think it's in Sahih Buhari, if I'm not wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, this, was this was taken as a basis for denying that there's any contagion, actually. So the, 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 the disease doesn't pass from, pass to pe uh, from people to people. God creates disease separately within every human being. So you don't need to take these measures of uh, preventing contagion. Scott, I mean, I, I, I get into details in the book and I rely, yes, on the works of Justin uh, Stearney, if I'm not wrong, professor, who wrote on this and who got into this discussion, how that happened. There were scholars who defended the idea that there's no contagion, partly based on this hadith and partly because of the occasionalist doctrine that God creates incidents separately without natural causation. So that's one example I discussed in the science chapter. Another one is astronomy. And uh, I spoke about uh, E.G., you know, a, a prominent Asharite scholar. He actually, he wrote a, a book on astronomy which, in which he actually questioned whether planetary motion happens on itself or God, whether God is moving the planets. Now, there is one uh, book that I would recommend everybody to check, and I didn't have time to put it in my book, but it will be in the second print. Uh, Islam, Occasionalism, and Freedom by Özgür Koca, who's a uh, scholar from Turkey, but professor uh, at, I think, California in uh, Claremont, Bayan. He was at, I don't know where he's now. But this uh, new book came out a few years ago. And he actually shows how Giurgiani, another great Asharat scholar, uh, had uh, a very interesting line on causation and planetary motion. Um, because Muslims, uh, Muslims relied on the Ptolemaic model, you know, uh, that they inherited from ancient Greece, because not everything that came from Greece was right, including uh, the Ptolemaic model. So there was the idea that the world is the center of it, and, you know, the planets are, uh, and, and the sun is going around it, and so on. That was totally wrong. Muslims had this as the science from the Greeks, so they relied on this. But they realized through observation that actually planets do not fit into this model. According to this model, like you see heavenly objects going, to, then, then they seem to come back. Like, like a, it, it, it just doesn't make it totally motion. So why was the case? Well, Giurgiani makes a very interesting comment. He says, this shows that these objects are not moving in a causational direction. God is willing them to go in different ways. So he, he found that tension between the observation and the Greek uh, ancient Greek model of the heliocentric, sorry, uh, geocentric model. But instead of questioning the motion, 
he thought this is a proof that God actually takes these as he wills. So there's no model here. But the same tension would lead Copernicus, because he thought in causal terms, would ultimately overthrow the model. So I think the occasionalist approach, you can do science with occasionalism. You can say the apple is falling, God is making it go down, or it's, you can call it gravity. But the occasionalist thinking led to an easy escape from seeking causal explanations to things. And then the Muslims said, oh, this is how God does it. And, and it was used in explaining earthquakes. Uh, why earthquakes happen? Well, because this is a sinful city. Instead of looking into the ge geostrategics, sorry, the... Uh, the geological you know, facts under the ground. And sometimes this can be happening in the level of popular piety, which might not be taken as representative of the tradition. But I see evidence of this, and especially Urkoja's book will show you those, I think, examples. Yeah, actually, to be honest, I mean, the, uh, the chapter on how we lost science, you know, actually is, uh, I find much more that I agree with in that particular chapter than, than um, probably most of the other chapters, you know. And I do think that you did, um, a fairly good job in showing, like, again, some of the viewpoints that um, that perhaps, you know, predominated among the masters, right? Masters as a result of certain certain ideas. But at the same time, I mean, my, my, my main critique of it is always that um, that by highlighting one or two scholars and what they had to say uh, about the issue still doesn't prove or um, doesn't serve as, I guess you would say, an empirical empirical evidence, right? That this, again, maybe that there maybe that exists, and maybe in the future you're able to find that that information. Again, for me, this is not so much about okay, Mustafa's wrong about everything, right? This is not this is not what I'm here for. You know, the, 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 this is about your argument and what you how you how you actually present it in your book. You know, so so on the issue of like science, okay, e.g. Or, or others, right? Okay, who embraced uh, their uh, viewpoints? Right? And, and how, uh, uh, what, what evidence is there to show that the masses em embrace these, these viewpoints as well? And is this viewpoint exclusively an Ashari viewpoint, right? You know, so I think those are important questions which need to be answered, right? I don't think that you did answer, right? And, mean, you know, but you do give a, a, some anecdotal sort of that's, evidence. That's fair. I give anecdotal evidence. That's fair. But I mean, it's hard to make maybe like a poll of what average Muslims thought in the 17th century, I mean, in Baghdad. But if you have leading scholars making certain statements, uh, you can, and when you look at the intellectual history, you see a certain stagnation that has happened in history. Maybe they're connected. At least that's something worth looking into. I'll just read you one thing. For example, uh, uh, Imam Rabbani, you know, is like a mujaddid, you know, of the, yeah. I think, 18th century. Is that correct? I'm a Serendi. Yes. 18th, I, mean, I think he is 17th. I, I can't remember exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, he's 16th, I think 16th. Word. Like, I mean, he's. Towering name in Turkey, Imam Rabbani. We grew up his books. I mean, like his, and mm -hmm. I, I have respect. I'm not disrespecting, but I, I will read a line. Uh, he spoke about the philosophers, and philosophers are bad people, of course, because they are the people who fall into kufr and all that. And he says, among their codified and systemic sciences of these philosophers is geometry, that is totally useless. The sum of three angles in a triangle is two right angles. What benefit does it have? So he thought geometry is totally useless. And, and what's there? What's, what's in Akhira about this? And so, and he's the mujaddid of, this, of, of the century. So 
I think uh, here's one thing, to be fair, maybe because the philosopher went too far, mm-hmm. the reaction against them mm-hmm. went too far as well. I, 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 maybe yeah. because, you know, Ibn Sina went into buying into Greek metaphysics, we should blame that maybe for that too. But maybe because, oh, this whole thing came, became, because once this becomes something dark and dangerous, oh, even geometry, we don't want that. Of course, Ghazali wasn't like this. Ghazali appreciated geometry, logic, science. But as Sheikh Hamza Yusuf says, these things died out in, in, in Madrasa because they were still suspicious of some sort because of the philosophy. So I think this is... Yeah, yeah, right. Go ahead. Go finish your point. Go ahead. So here's what I'm trying to see is mm-hmm. say. Like we have so many Muslims who are proud of our tradition. I am proud of a million things in our tradition, but I'm mm-hmm. trying to say, listen, folks, we have like issues too. We have to figure out why, why this really happened. And we can blame the Western world. We can blame Western colonialism, condemn it, all its evils, or Russian colonialism, or, you know, all that too. But why we lost the dynamics which made us a creative, open, dynamic, you know, civilization. We have to think through these things. And yes, I found a lot of anecdotal evidence showing that we have an issue here. I co- connected them together. And yes, maybe more research can show that what I exactly argued was more actually more complicated there. I will myself probably add more in second presses and make, maybe making some things more uh, complicated over time. But this book is a call to uh, other Muslims to think some of the theological approaches that we have and maybe I emphasize problems only in some chapters that are then the, uh, the things that were maybe more admirable there. But my yeah, effort yeah. is to call for these things and to, to think through these things. These yeah, things. To, to me, I, I just think that, you know, that the explanations are too theological heavy, right? You know, and, and there's not, like, for instance, even where we were speaking about here with regard to science, yeah, sure, the reaction may have been extreme right, to the philosophers, right? But we also had to consider, okay, what was going on in the educational system, uh, what, uh, you know, what was happening politically. I mean, there are a lot of factors, you know, uh, that as we can see what happened in colonialism, you know, that scholars, you know, the, the, the role that scholars played, it changed, the Oqaf, I mean, you know, there are a lot of these other things, you know, so I'm just, I'm just really sort of, like I said, I'm I'm really peeved when I see people, okay, well, same like you said, this one thing, right, or this theological issue is is what led to it you know it's all internal it's uh, other words you know uh, uh like you said you, you do another thing that you that you write that you that you do How, you know, okay yeah sure there's an outside influence as well right but it seems to be internal uh, a, a very heavy focus on what's happening internally amongst muslims that's leading to all of this you know and i and i think that that's the area where i really have my strongest disagreement with you now i actually did want to take an opportunity i, I want to sort of shift gears a little bit um i was going to originally i was going to read some things uh, you know like i said these i wanted to read something but i actually wanted to respond to a few uh, things that you said earlier t- earlier today uh after first and foremost highlighting that with respect to uh, the question of of your scholarship, um, I did make clear at the very beginning that, okay, well, maybe the reason that uh, you have these flaws, at least in my uh, in my uh, estimation, that it has to do with you relying upon, you know, bad, poor scholarship, right? You know, so I do actually say that at the beginning, right, of, of the actual review, right? You know, in other words, I say that, okay, well, you know, no problem, maybe, maybe you do have an excuse. Maybe I do need to engage uh, those other authors, you know, and I've attempted to do that since, you know, you've actually um, brought that up. But I think that, you know, uh, on the question of orthodoxy, 
again, this is again one of those areas where we disagree. You know that I I, I believe in orthodoxy. I believe that orthodoxy. There's always going to be orthodoxy, right? You know, there's no way around it, right? You know, so as much for as much as we want to create this world with much freer world where everyone gets to sort of express him or herself, uh, um, come in and out of religions, et cetera, right? You know, which myself personally, uh, I, I, I have no problem with apostasy being criminalized, but I do have a problem with um, threatening to kill someone because they no longer believe in Islam, right? You know, so, 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 and of course, I know that might be very, very difficult for, for certain people to really, really follow, but we can talk about that a little bit later, but, but Orthodox, so, sorry, it should be, it can be criminalized, but not to the level of that. In other words, in, in other words, is that it is a sin, put it like this, you know, like uh, apostasy is a sin, you know, we don't want to encourage apostasy, right? You know, so, so no, I'm not in favor of encouraging apostasy at all, right? Yeah, but I also believe that, like you, that threatening to kill someone, right, who actually, again, somebody wakes up tomorrow and says, you know what, I'm not totally sure if I believe in Islam anymore, right, that okay, you say, hey, you know, you know, put your faith back in your heart or, or die, right? I don't think that that itself was ever the intent of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you know, we, we, there are people who left Islam during his, during his, during his lifetime. We know he never sent assassins after them. There are hypocrites who came, who, who, who said things to him that were considered to be, um, um, you know, um, disparaging. He didn't have those killed. He knew all the hypocrites. He didn't kill the hypocrites, right? Even though he knew who they were, right? So in other words, so, that, so when we look at the Sunnah itself, right, you know, then um, that I think that's, that's it definitely, uh, much to say about that. And I've written quite a bit about this issue of, you know, of apostasy and, and religious freedom. Uh, but I, but again, um, apostasy is still a sin, right? It is a, a grave sin, right? Um, and and uh, and so so in that sense, I have no problem uh, with it being taught, you know, in society as something wrong, something morally wrong, right? You see, you know, so 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 orthodoxy there's always going to be one, right? You know, so even like, for instance, the type of world you're talking about uh, creating, um, that it simply just becomes another form of orthodoxy with, with the, with the uh, 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 as long as there's an effort to actually preserve that as the norm, right? You understand, you know, that we, you understand, so, so that becomes a new orthodoxy. There's no around it, you know, so there's always going to be uh, choices that governments and societies make with regard to what is considered to be acceptable behavior in society. Now, the other thing with regard to Ibn Rush, I wanted to talk about that too. Uh, and my objections to uh, the, the, the statements regarding him being sort of pro, um, uh, um, um, I guess you say, um, much more uh, accommodating to uh, female uh, interests, you know, in that particular uh, critique. Now, I did read um, Bellows, um, her, um, her writing about Ibn Rush, right, you know, uh, that you, that you uh, relied upon in your book. And, um, and I, don't have, I don't have any problems with what she said in that, for the most part, you know, in, in, her, in her article, right? But she, she commented more about his, his uh, summary or his commentary on Plato's Republic and what he has had to say there, which I did reference at least uh, one Arabic version of it. You know, we know the original Arabic version has been lost, you know, but, you know, it's been retranslated into Arabic and also into Hebrew. And then, uh, you know, so. Uh, it came to us through Hebrew, I think. Right, exactly. Right, yeah. Yeah. right. So, so I, 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 you know, so going back to that, you because can see. Because we what, what, <laughs> Yeah, so you can see that, of course, him thinking on as a philosopher, right? Clearly he's like, okay, well, really, you know, on a certain level that there, there's, there's no, 
um, reason why a, a woman should 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 not you know play a role in society, right? You know, and and so, so yeah, we definitely see that in Ibn Rush's thought. But on the subject of bidat mujtahid, right? Uh, and it wasn't only her; there was a couple other scholars, I believe, you quoted as well, who actually were saying that by reading bidat mujtahid, that one gets the impression that Ibn Rush is much more female friendly than other scholars, you know, but there's really nothing there, right? Again, it, I, I went back to the Bidaya after reading your like response to my, my review and see that, you know, it is exactly what I said. All Ibn Rishi is doing is, is quoting Ibn Tabari and others. He's quoting people. He's not saying anything. It, it, what people don't understand as well about Ibn Rush, Ibn Rush is one of the major mushtahis of the Maliki school, right? In other words, when in Islamic law, if, if Ibn Rush says something, and it clashes with the a viewpoint of another mushahid, you know, that Ibn Rush often, more than, more than likely, that his position actually will be taken. In other words, Ibn Rush, in, in, many, in any way, in any, it, 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 for, the, for the most part, actually is setting a standard, right, for what is true, Malikism, right, you know? So, like, there's a statement that was made, a claim made by one of the authors that, that um, Ibn Rush allowing for or making it binding upon uh, a husband to honor the wife's desire to um, to to not take on a second wife, right? You know, it runs contrary to mainstream Malikism. No, it doesn't, right? That actually is Malikism. That's mainstream Malikism, right? And so, so in other words, there was some faulty scholarship there. And so, like as you said, okay, maybe I need to engage their their writings, right? Yeah, you know. And so, um, let me and also, then, okay. also one, one let thing. Me ask Go ahead. One, 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 one last thing. I want to go ahead. You want to comment about the Ibn Rush, right? I'll read a uh, paragraph from my book, page yeah. 117. Yet still, the distinguished jurist primer, which is the Bidayat, does not reveal a big reformism within Islamic law. Based on that, some have, suggest, some have suggested that despite his unorthodox place in Islam as a philosopher, Ibn Rush's work on the Sharia was still orthodox. However, careful readers of the Muslim philosopher realized that he had much more to say on law, but because of the precari precariousness of his situation, he only hinted them quietly in commentaries. Right. And yeah, I, I remember reading that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm not saying that he was this kind of uh, modern liberal feminist reformer in Bidayat al-Mujtahid. No, no, no. I'm, not resp I, I'm I actually not responding that. to you. I'm actually responding to the authors that so, you quote. So right? the, you know, I put that too. But then some authors... Some yeah. scholars, Arabic scholars, in Bidayat noted a tendency, and I quoted that. And if that's wrong, let's have a conversation on that, and I will put in the second edition of the book, thanks to Dr. Ali, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm correcting this part. I'll, I'll, I'll put that. But I think what is even more important, and that's the real highlight of my chapter there, mm -hmm. is he, what he said about women's uh, place in Muslim society in his commentary on Plato on Plato's Republic. And that was a real big quote there and my, my big emphasis there. Did the, because, you know, let's see. I mean, he says what? Uh, like, let me find it in a second. I mean, he, he says in these states, I mean, the, our Muslim states, the ability of women is not known. The intellectual capacity of women is not known because they are only taken for pre procreation. They are placed at the servants of their husbands to the business of procreation, rearing and breastfeeding. But this undoes their other activities, and it goes on. So 
It's just say because people's intel and women's intellectual capacity is not appreciated, they're only seen as just their job is take care of the house and the woman and the children, which is still an approach. I mean, you, you find in some parts of the Muslim world. So the fact that he criticizes as an Islamic scholar, but in the Plato's Republic, I mean, that was the remarkable point there. Did this ever influence his approach to jurisprudence? Because he was a Qadi as well, and he was a jurist. Uh, some people no. think say yes, and you say no. Okay, I take that. I'll look into that. Let's have a conversation solely on this. Mm-hmm. And I there, I didn't go through Bidayat myself, compared with the Maliki. Though my knowledge of Maliki would no would not be enough for that. I relied on a few scholars there. If you think they're wrong, I'll I'll correct that. I'll give you that. But uh, yeah. the one thing, uh, I mean, you want to have say more on the uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to. Uh, the other other topic you had. Made a reference to earlier today was uh, Dr. Rajiv uh, Shintar's you know, yeah. of division uh, of of Islamic uh, history, I guess you would say, or the um, the, the situation in society, the communalist and the universalist sort of perspective. You know, or you know that now again, I read his writing as well, right? So I went to his article, found his article, I read it, and really, I was actually shocked, right, personally to um in, in certain in a lot of ways you know now, now first and foremost it's very clear that this is something novel that he himself you know, he, he introduces this is it has no precedent in islamic history there are not other scholars in islamic history who talk about universalism as opposed to communalism right you know that this is his i guess as a sociologist that he's speaking you know so he comes up with his own terminology but i actually was really shocked to see that his uh his it seems that his knowledge of the Hanafi school is very limited, right? In the sense that um, he relies upon uh, one issue, right? In the Hanafi school to then project that the Hanafis were sort of like these humanitarians, you know, these these, uh, individuals who were um, about sort of, I won't say radical equality, but you know, there were, in other words, making no distinction between Muslim and non-Muslim. What actually did the Hanafis, when you actually, for instance, you open up something like the Akam Quran of Abu Bakr Jassas, one of the great Hanafi scholars, you know, I read through multiple verses related to the uh, matter of Qisas, right? The law of equality, uh, life for life, et cetera. That's very clear, right? And from his commentary that the Hanafis, they divided, they made a distinction between the Dhimmi and the Harbi, right? So when they're talking about those who actually, uh, if you take, if a Muslim takes a the life of a Dhimmi, then uh, you uh, the life of a Muslim can be taken, you know. But they don't have the same attitude about the person who is we call the Harbi, the individual who actually who's engaged in hostilities against Muslims, right? So it wasn't well, like a Harbi in a the first blanket, place, that would be like know? an enemy combatant in in, in the modern right. definition. But the question right, right. Well, is, not, just, not, is not only thing. combatant. It's not only Harbi is not simply combatant. Harbi is an individual Someone who's not who's, who's not, not in, in a state of peace with you. Who's not in a right, state exactly, of peace. Right, exactly, right. Exactly, right. So, yeah, right, but right, I mean, right. uh, I, I, but I think there's a nuance. There. I mean, I don't know whether Rajab Shantuk exaggerated the meaning of that, but it is clear that there's a difference, which is also in Al Mawardi's Al Akim Al Sultaniya, which I give in the footnotes. Yes, Hanafis thought that the life of a Dhimmi and a Muslim is of equal value when it comes to legislation. Is that correct? I mean... Uh, not completely, but I mean, for the most part, I yeah. For the most part, yeah. Compared to other schools, yeah, that the Hanafis were much more um, um, 
I guess egalitarian, right? And the much more egalitarian uh, for the most part, right? You know, but it's and, not. And there's so a lot of nuance in their position, yeah, right? It's not I understand, as, but because okay. and and he thinks, and I think there is room to think that that has something to do with the Hanafi origins in Ehlal Ray. And and ultimately the theological difference between no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's very clear again because actually their argument, the Hanafi argument, is a um, a um, what we call it a uh, a divine command argument. It's based it's upon Quran, hadith. Yes. It's based upon hadith. It's based upon Quran, right? You know, so it's their interpretation of the Quran. They're responding to like other schools with the Quran and with Hadith. They're not using this. Oh, they're using Quran. This is not the Quranic verse. Yeah, right. Yes. The Hanafis are still rooted in the divine command tradition, right? You know, this is not like, you know, the LLA tradition isn't. The LLA tradition wasn't independent of revelation for sure, but it is whether the Quran or the Hadith, which one is more definitive or, you know. So I, I, mean, I will look into the origin of the Hanafi view. I know it's based from a verse in the Quran, but in the footnotes, as I put it, the difference there is Hanafis thought a Muslim who murders a non-Muslim should face retaliation. Other Sunnis argued to the contrary on the assumption that Muslims' lives are superior. So there's a difference there. Oh, I again, again, I, I think, see, again, I think that this is our, our problem is that we you continue to characterize the Sunni position in rationalistic terms, right? You know, it's, it's, of course, you have to reason. There's no way around of not reasoning with the scripture, with, with the text, right? You know, but the foundation of that reasoning is the text, right? You know, it starts from the text, right? So it's not just the Sunni saying, okay, oh, oh because, uh, you know, we, we're, we're superior to them. That's not all. God led us to believe that we are superior to, to them, right? You know, so so it's, it's, I think there's a big difference between the two, right? And, uh, and so with regard to the Hanafi argument, again, they find a Hadith here or there, or, they, or they, they, the way that they understood certain verses, they say, okay, well, God leads us to believe this about this particular matter. So it wasn't okay. like some... The note I'm taking here of... is that in the <laughs> second print, I will add more to that discussion yeah. about the Hanafi view versus the other views. And if Shenar, Shenar, uh, Recep Shantuk's argument is not yeah. strong, I'll strengthen mm-hmm. it or uh, I will modify it. I'm mm-hmm. taking another note. But I want to come back to the issue of apostasy you mentioned, encouraging apostasy. Of yeah. course, I mean, when we're saying apostates should not be criminalized, None of us are promoting apostasy here, right? Quite, and by the way, I am. My contention is that my observation is that we are having apostasy precisely because of the people who want to kill apostates. Right. Uh, I mean, this coercive understanding of Islam. I've written a few articles. I mean, you, what I write in the New York Times and elsewhere. A few times I wrote that today Iran is the number one country that produces ex-Muslims. Right. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. from. I mean, people who become Christians from Islam or pure atheists, uh, very hostile too. I mean, many years ago, I, I was in a taxi in Boston and I saw the driver and his name was Muhammad something. I said, oh, salam alaikum, brother. And he said, I don't speak that language. I said, oh, sorry, like what happened? Like, then he told me his story. His father was a, a bureaucrat in the Shah regime and then he was tortured and killed. And he said, this is what Islam did to my father. I said, like, it's not Islam, but the Islamic Republic of Iran, but when do these things become conflated, right? This reaction to the regime, oppressive right. regime, turn into the religion itself. I mean, that one reason I'm, uh, I think we should figure out these freedom issues. 
One which I, you and I, I think, are very much similar. I mean, on apostasy, on blasphemy, I don't know what you think about that too. But I think by taking Quranic principles like la ikraha to your religion, to me, mine, that, and by reviving the Meccan verses that were abrogated, uh, we can have a non-coercive understanding of Islam, which will be much better for the future of our faith. Because I think we, if we are losing people, it's not because we are not coercing people. It's quite the contrary. It's, it's, there's a lot of coercion done in the name of Islam. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. I, I think that, I mean, I, I believe, I mean, we're about 95% in agreement, right? You know, I mean, see, unless I'm misunderstanding you, I mean, um, with regard to how far you want to take freedom, right? You know, in other words, as a value, as a, as a side I can say a few like, things on like, that. Like, because like, I don't believe anyone believes in absolute freedom. Like, anyone should have the absolute freedom to, to, have, to, to speak, the absolute freedom to, uh, you understand, to follow their conscience, right? You know, I don't think anyone, even though that's, that's what we preach, right, in the West, right, we're told in the West, right? I don't believe that anyone truly believes that. You know, we believe everyone has a limit, right? Uh, and um, yes, I, I don't believe that uh, a non-Muslim who disparages the Prophet وسلم, should be killed, right? Even though, of course, we do find this in our tradition. However, I don't believe that it should be okay for someone to disparage the Prophet or any other Prophet, right? You know, I, I think that it should be discouraged in certain ways. It, there should be some type of disincentive against those type of things. In the same way, there should be disincentive against um, um, speech which is insightful, that 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 you know you understand you know so so I I I'm so, so I I'm there with regard to okay yes uh, the threat of of execution doesn't encourage faith if that person dies a non-Muslim who was once a Muslim and he leaves Islam and you kill them in the state of Kufr then um, what what was really the 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 point what benefit came from that right you know you know so and again I'm not saying that. At the same time, I'm not saying that I figure out something that early scholars didn't figure out, but I do believe that because of ossification, because of uncritical imitation, right, going to taking to an extreme, uh, and then also, again, I suspect that context was lost, right? You know, you know, because when we were talking about the Hanafi position on apostasy, you know, how they make the distinction between women and men. Yeah. Right. Again, once again, I just again, this is sort of like just a digression slightly is that the Hanafi position about women as opposed to men is really a scripture based argument. Right. Rather than a rational uh, argument. Right. Because because there's a hadith that says don't kill uh, women, women and children, children That's right? the famous hadith, only right? those who fight against you. And right. so. They say so here in this case th- that becomes an exception. Just al-am, right? So the, the 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 hadith about killing those who change their religion or their way their life path, that is limited. Right, you know, right, right, is, is, you know yeah. So 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 I do believe that like many of the early scholars' position, in particular those we considered to be the mushtahideen or the those the eponymous founders of the schools, had opinions at times which. Uh, the context for which we had not been passed down. And that's just simply a belief, a suspicion I have personally, you know, you know, but I do think that it is important for us to reach back in the past. If we want to convince more Muslims, a larger uh, number of Muslims of these things, it is important to, to find those precedents that help the arguments rather than 
saying that, okay, well, you know, uh, this particular rational explanation, you know, is the reason why I, I adopt this, this position. And of course, there are going to be many Muslims who are inclined towards that, right? They are going to be, you know, as you know. But I think the vast majority of them are not really willing to go there because they fear that they're going to be letting go, right, of something which is supposed to be anchoring them, right, you know, which, you know, morally, right, which is the Islamic law, you know, and then, of course, the ethical teachings beyond that. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you to a great extent. And I mean, that's why in the chapters about freedom in my book, like uh, blasphemy, apostasy and religious policing, Hispa, the three issues that I discuss, mm-hmm. I, I go to textual issues. I mean, I look into what the Quran says, what the Hadith or the Sirah says. And for example, on blasphemy, there are stories of poets, you know, like Kabina Ashraf or people like that who were executed and they're taken as basis for blasphemy as well. They're not, they didn't just blaspheme, but they also incited war against yeah, the right. community. Exactly. So it's not just that where there are other cases where Prophet was reviled, but he forgave them or he didn't attack them, you know. Yeah. So why don't we take them as an example? By the way, Ibn Taymiyyah has an interesting argument on that, which is quoted in Pakistani courts. He says, the Prophet had the right to forgive insults to himself, but we cannot. <laughs> so, whereas, I mean, why don't we... Why no, that's we, pretty common. It's, it's, it's fairly common, you find that. You know, it was okay, not, I mean, it's not just the Hanafis. It's, it's like you find it among the Malikis, like, for instance, called the Iyad and his Tarif. Uh, his, yeah, uh, I mean, Ibn Taymiyyah, I said, make it, makes it... Makes it yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, the Han- humbly, right, yeah. All right, yeah. Humbly, so, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It's, uh, it's very common. I mean, well, this is a way of interpretation. I would rather say, well, the, here there's a sunnah there, right? That, that, that's a prophet's behavior. So, I mean, this would be a different interpretation. Right. Where do I want to take freedom? I mean, it's not up to me, of course. I'm just uh, throwing ideas here. But I believe uh, we should accept the principle of no coercion. When I say freedom, I mean, th- or even liberalism, that's a you know very disputed term in the U.S. And in the U.S., it turned into something else than what I would know as liberalism. I know classical liberalism. What I mean is really a limited state that doesn't coerce the citizens about their beliefs and their ways of life. It does. I'm not advocating freedom from religion. I'm advocating the right to be pious in the way you want to be pious. And whether you are Hanafi, Maliki, Hanbali, like Salafi. I mean, I always say, like, in my liberal society, every woman should be able to write the word the niqab, right, if she wants it. And I'll fight against the secularists of France who want to interfere in Muslim women. I mean, not militarily fight. I mean, like, ideologically. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and people should... Thanks, but, like then I will, but then I will stand up against mm-hmm. the Taliban and will say, you cannot impose your fiqh, you know, on the women of Afghanistan. Let them be Muslims in the way they want. And of course, every, in every society, there are norms that are naturally articulated and imposed without legal means. Like in a, in a society, if you do a certain things, people will look like you, this will disapprove you, you will face social reaction. I think that is enough uh, for any, any sustaining that we need. We just need to criminalize things like murder, pun- killing, and, and basically crimes that are universal. I think things like uh, apostasy or blasphemy, these things, we will disapprove them. We will not encourage them. If people blaspheme against the Prophet Muhammad, every Muslim will morally react to that. We can shun those things. We can boycott people uh, doing those things. But if you take them into a criminal level, uh, what happens is I think it's wrong. And I don't think there's a scriptural basis for it, by the way, especially in the Quran. Uh, And we end up uh, hurting innocent people. We end up what what Pakistan is doing today. When two people have a quarrel, one of them is a non-Muslim. The Muslim can say uh, she blasphemed against Prophet Muhammad and that person 
spend years in jail. So I'm giving a very limited classical meaning of freedom with a limited state based on rule of law and let uh, Muslims and others live live their lives as they want it. And in that society, there will be a lot of moral judgments in society naturally, but those things do not have to be legislated. Yeah, I I definitely agree that the the government... Given the, uh, um, I guess, given the the power to appropriate religious uh, doctrine in order to um, execute their political rivals or to execute um, the members of a minority um, um, denomination, you know, that I think that that in itself has been a problem historically, you know, and and it still will be a problem today. And I do, and I'm opposed to that, you know, especially in the area of Takfir, you know, because. Um, uh, again, everybody, you know, believes that, you know, and this is something you said as well, right? I agree with this. You mentioned in your book that everybody is, is orthodox, you know, in their own minds, right? And so uh, when you um, have the government determining that, okay, this particular group, right, is not orthodox, uh, but not only orthodox, they are apostates. And as apostates, their lives can be taken now, right? I think that that in itself just really opens up the door to like major abuse as we've seen historically, right? You know, um, on the other hand, I do also, and I think this is a slight disagreement with you on this point is is that, um, as I stated before, I have no problem with the government criminalizing apostasy or a blasphemy, right? I'm just simply opposed to them executing people for it, right? You know, um, I don't have a problem with a government punishing in, in a lesser, some of a lesser, lesser degree, right? A person who actually um, says something which is very insightful or uh, it, it angers a large, you know, a, a, a group of people in, in our society. Um, and, and, and also I'm not opposed, even the government placing certain um, standards of, of like, um, I mean, dress code standards. Now, now, again, I'm not, again, I'm not pro- I wouldn't say that I'm pro-Taliban, you know, anything like that. But um, I think that the way that what what's so differentiates me from you is that I'm less inclined to criticize a foreign government for whatever decision that they make, you know, with their society. I mean, we have even even our own society. We have you know public indecency laws, right, in most states, right? You know, pretty much all of, all of our states, right? So 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 government already does police our dress, right? It's just that, you know, in the West, it's like, okay, you, okay, you can wear a bikini, but you just can't show your, genit- your genitalia, right? You know, unless, of course, you're in certain, uh, like, there's a certain part of San Francisco where people walk around naked here, you know. But, um, but uh, in other words, you know, we're already involved with um, those type of impositions, right? You know, and, and I think that the France example is a little bit different in that France fundamentally is saying that you don't have the right to put more on, right? You know, uh, you don't have the, you, you know, you have to take off, you know, uh, more so the public can see, right? It, it, it'd be one thing if they were saying, this is because of security concerns and we need to see your face. So if you commit a crime, we know who you are. Be, that would be one argument. You say, okay, no problem. Maybe that's some justification, you know, but that's not really what they're arguing. They just like, listen, this is oppressive. You know, we have to treat everyone equal. And even if you want to dress that way, you're not allowed to do so, right? So that in itself, I think, is an extreme. I mean, I know French secularism well because I I've fought its Turkish version uh, in my own country, Turkey, yeah. many years. So they banned 
uh, Muslim woman from wearing hijab and going to the campus until 10 years ago. So that was mm -hmm. like, I was a very big opponent of that for many years. Mm -hmm. So obviously those are freedom problems in the West. That, and that's why I prefer, if there is a better model of a secure state, I prefer the American model for certainly against the French model. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, or Canadian or British, let's say the Anglo-Saxon model to the uh, French. Yeah, in, in Britain, we have we have freedom to pretty much wear what you want or, or not wear what you want. There, and we are yeah, and I think that I think that should be it. So we have a disagreement on the government role. I mean, I don't believe government should get into these issues. Yes, there are public decency laws. That's fair. But I think if they're democratic, you know, if, if, if the majority of society think that a certain way of behavior on the street and yeah, I mean, people cannot do things on the street that are kind of very private. They should be democratically, they can be democratically legislated. But I don't believe in a group like the Taliban, you know, capturing power and saying that, you know, according to the understanding of the Hanafi fiqh that we understand through the Obandi channels, and this is what women should do. Uh, I mean, I think we Muslims will have a better uh, social order when all different phases of the ummah, from the Salafis to the modernists, can just live their lives without interfering in each other. And the state is the protector of basic rights. Uh, there is this idea that you know, we'll capture the state and we'll make the society conform to an ideal, whether the secular Kemalist Atatürkist ideal or the Taliban, you know, uh, that kind of ideal. I think this is wrong and this is creating endless uh, conflict, you know. In, in, in yeah, yeah, I understand that. But I, I think I think in one, in one sense, it's much more idealistic than it is, you know, realistic in that, um, as I stated before, there's always going to be some type of orthodoxy. And, and I think that also it doesn't help every society to be uniform, right, in this government structure, right? You know, I don't believe, uh, you know, uh, at least in my experience with my, you know, people that I come across my entire life, that most people don't care, right, really what form of government they have. Most people in the West really don't even know, right, how the government is supposed to work, right, you see. Um, and we talk a lot about democracy and those type of things, you know, but of course the founding fathers were, founding fathers in America were not trying to establish a democracy. You know, they're, you know they expressly stated that they're establishing a republic, right, uh, so representative government. And, uh, and people, most people don't understand that. Um, I think that most people would be fine if um, government intruded less in their lives. Uh, they allowed them, uh, you know, they, they, they worked for the people. They granted them the opportunities to flourish, um, to live peacefully, to protect themselves and their, and their family and their property, you know, and that can happen under different types of government. It doesn't have to happen under one particular form of government, you know? So, um, uh, I, I, um, you know, so in that sense, I, like I said, I, I slightly disagree, you know, with, with, with that, you know, so trying to make everything uniform, uh, but also because uh, there's always going to be someone who determines what is, you know, sort of the um, social orthodoxy, right, you know, um, in, in a given, given country, you know, and then you have to preserve that orthodoxy. So if we say, okay, we want this type of government, you know, everyone really can't have an opportunity to actually be at the reins of power. Right? Yeah. In other words, it's, it's, it's as if like, it's, it's almost as if you have to discriminate, right? Because that's the only way to preserve a tradition, right? 
a government tradition, right? You have to discriminate. You have to ensure that those people actually who are par, who actually, who actually hold the, the reins of, of, of power actually have conviction about the system under which they live and actually they're going to be ruled rule by, you know, you know, and that, that itself probably is own sort of like um, <laughs> um, um, conversation by itself. But I do the two, two, two final things I wanted to, to talk about, and this is related to the review and your response to the review. Um, one, I think it's easy to just uh, deal with that. And that the first issue related to the question of whether or not Shaitan was the first rationalist, right? Um, and so you gave the impression that that's, that's what I was implying or that's, that's what I say. Well, I'd actually never said that. I never said that Shaitan was the first rationalist, right? And I think that well, here you misunderstood the point I was making by mentioning or italicizing reasons, that Satan reasons, right? You know, that the idea was not that he was the first rationalist, but the whole point was is that that Shaitan, he utilized and employed reason in order to uh, justify his disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? right? Um, and his reasoning turned out to be flawed, right? And Allah demonstrated so, that, yeah. Right, right, right. His reason turned out to be flawed. So if his reasoning, uh, if his reasoning can be flawed, then someone else's reasoning can be flawed, right? And so this wasn't an anti-intellectual sort of response I was giving. I wasn't trying to say that the angels weren't reasoning either. Angels were reasoning too, right? right? But their reasoning didn't lead to some form of violation of God's commandments. They were questioning the hikmah of the creation, the wisdom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they were, they were definitely right. questioning that, questioning that. And then perhaps because they already seen all the other creatures that Allah created on the earth, they're hunting and killing each other. Where, you know, why would why create another one of those same things? Allah knows best, you know, but that's what it seemed to me that that's what they were. That was the foundation of why they were able to question it, right? Because they knew Allah wanted them. He wanted all creation to celebrate uh, or to glorify him, right? You know, but it's like, well, why would you do it again, right? But Allah's Ta'ala highlights, okay, that Adam had a particular uh, quality that other creatures didn't have, you know. So he talked about articulation, rationality, um, and so and so. And this is also something you asked me to clarify. You actually questioned in the footnote to say, okay, well, because I said that uh, Shaitan had good reason not uh, to to um, accept that Adam was better than him or, or the angels because he had not yet proven his distinctiveness, right? And so you say, okay, well, no, no, actually the verse does prove Adam's distinctiveness. And I said, yes, true, it does. You know, when in Allah's, and Allah, he created, he, he taught Adam all the names and the names of all things, right? Sure, but that's this really what, 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 I, what I was trying to say. The distinctiveness that I was talking about was a moral distinctiveness, a moral distinction. In other words, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he judges the human being by our moral acts, right? What we do, we don't do, right? Um, Adam had not yet done that, right? But Allah is already saying, prostrate, bow down to him, right? That's really the point I was making there, you know? So, uh, so those were, uh, there were two points. And then one final uh, issue, was related to the question of, of slavery, right? Of course, of course, the most you know controversial thing in the Quran, in my view, um, not so much slavery, but concubinism, right? Is probably the most 
to me is the most challenging right thing in the Quran, right? For anybody, right? You know, it's the issue of you know that Quran actually authorizes having uh, intercourse with uh, a captive, right? You know, so but slavery, my my statements about American slavery and about issues of color and things like that. That I was I was focusing on slavery itself, not on the issue of concubinism, right? You know, we can talk about concubinism, right? But you you responded that okay, well, uh, you know, a bit outraged, you know, that okay, well, is there not an objective way to know that slavery is evil? Uh, and then you talked about empathy, you know, what about empathy? You know, to me, empathy is it's not a rational, um, it's not a rational uh, basis, uh, uh, it's not a, 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 a objectively um, 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 rational sort of um, foundation, right, for for saying that okay, that slavery is wrong, right, because you wouldn't want to be in the same situation. Therefore, it's, 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 that's seems more pathological, more emotional. That's pathos, right? That's not logos, right? It's you know, usually when you're talking about what is moral, what's immoral, we're dealing in the realm of logos, and um, you know, so I, I felt that that was a, a bit of a weak response. Again, now, now, of course, I, like you, uh, I would like to provide some type of apology, right, for, in particular, for Muslims, per se, not necessarily for non-Muslims, because I believe that certain things non-Muslims are just never going to accept, right? Right, you know, as a person of faith, uh, I can't be, I can only be with so concerned about the opinions of non-Muslims, especially an atheist or a hedonistic person or et cetera, right? Uh, uh, but for Muslims who struggle with these things, um, I am very much concerned with this. And so even in my teaching as a tuna, you know, got these family law and, and a lot of controversial things come up in family law. And I purposely bring them up. The hitting birds, you know, it's the issue of slavery. These are things we talk about with the sisters, because I'm very much concerned with our young sisters um, um, losing uh, faith, right, in Islam, right? Yeah. So we talk these things through, we talk them out. And, and, and alhamdulillah, I think that I've had some relative success with helping them to gain a deeper understanding, right, of Islam and what Quran teaches on these things, you know, uh, through the classes that that I teach there. You know, anyway, you know, so those are just a few things that I wanted to make sure that uh, were cleared up before we concluded today. Thank you for those points. Uh, I mean, on the devil issue, I mean, your text emphasized that Satan reasons there, so that will and and I'm kind. It reminded me of the narrative that the some of the Ahlul Hadith use about Mutazila as Ahlul Ahwa. Like, I mean, the, 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 because they were using reason, that reason itself was Hawa. Like, that's temptation. Right. Uh, I mean, the devil's story can, of course, shows that people can reason out of Hawa. Right? I mean. Yeah. Vladimir Lenin reasoned a lot, wrote a lot of books, but that was towards a bad direction, right? Or you can, so there are like people can, through reason, arrive at terrible ideas uh, that are destructive or, you know, you know, yeah. they, that's, but, but, but that, that, that they are using reason. But in, the point, the interesting story there, uh, God reasons through it. Angels shows them that Adam actually knows things more than them. They, 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 something they don't know. So very interesting, like the God, God's response to angels before the Satan isn't like, I created and you're, you're, no, you're nobody to ask. God actually demonstrates to angels so they see the hikmah, the wisdom behind God's commandment. So I, I just found that important to emphasize there. Of course, reason can take people to bad directions. It can be a cover for 
something, but also it can be the articulation of ethics and, and, and virtue. And so, and we shouldn't lose that edge. Right, yeah. So reasoning, reasoning, that's one, one point, I, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like, I think there's a difference between reasoning or analogizing to extend the ruling of scripture beyond the scripture to something else and analogizing and reasoning in order to um, negate the authoritativeness of scripture, you know, and I think they're two different things. And, and so yes. historically the Sunnis were not opposed to reason. They were not opposed to reason. They were opposed to the latter, you know, which is one when you actually, your reasoning now ethical to reason. reject yeah. scripture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Not to reject it, but you know, th yeah. is that also an epistemologically valid way of thinking? I mean, Mutazila said yes, and uh, the Asherite said no. And yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, on the issue of slave, uh, one thing by reason, I mean, especially from the Mutazili use of reason, I think it involves uh, not just logos, but the even the feelings of conscience and empathy as well. I mean, I see that in Abdul Jabbar's, Qadil Jabbar's. By reason, they meant moral intuition too, I think, Mutazila. Yeah, right. By yeah. reason, people know that even if there's no revelation, that you have to help yeah. a person in need, you know, in, in desert, dying out of thirst, you have to give. So I think the, the term using, reason was used in a very broad sense, which includes yeah, yeah. ethical intuition and maybe right, right. as well. Right, and I think that's one of the points where I shot it a different with the Montezida, right? Yeah. Exactly, so, yeah. and hence I'm with the Montezida there, you know, but, you know, I understand the position. Hmm. On slavery, uh, I mean, you're right, this is a very difficult position, and I think, it, I, I'm glad you're discussing these issues at Zaytuna hmm. with, uh, with the sisters and the hmm. other students there. I think the right way, I mean, this is one of the reasons for me I mean, I'm coming from a what, what I call a halal Quran point of view, a very strict uh, Quran point focused mm -hmm. on. That over time evolved into a little bit of a historicism uh, as advocated by Fazul Rahman Malik. You would be familiar with his work, uh, probably. Uh, he advocated the historicity of the Quran, which is the Quran was a revelation. Of course, God's revelation, we believe in it. But that revelation was engaged in a historical human context. And we should understand the the role of context in 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 in, in some of the Quranic ahkam. Uh, and I see issues like slavery or women's rights. They are obviously uh, one thing that is interesting is that the Quran calls for freeing the slaves, praise the freeing the slaves in Surah Balat, one of the early surahs. That's in in Mecca. What when it comes to Medina, when there's legislation, the Quran also has to legislate slavery too. It's a part part of the war effort. So from Fazl Rahman's perspective, what I would understand is that... Well, I mean, no, I think you have to correct that. I mean, the Quran doesn't legislate slavery. It doesn't, right? This Quran never legislates. The Quran embraces I mean, what is available. The Quran encourages emancipation, it, but it, is there and it addresses it. The Quran it addresses accepts the norm. It accepts the norm, not legislates yeah. it. Right? it. It addresses it, tells that you, know, you can do these things with the slaves or other things. So you, it accepts a society where it's there and gives some rules within that context. Right. Right. I think I would see uh, the universal principle of calling for their abolition, calling their uh, freeing or emancipation as a universal value, whereas I would understand that there was also war going on. Muslims were operating in a certain environment where everybody would take slaves and they had to do these things. So there was an acceptance of the norm there. So my own way of approaching this thing is to understand the two movements, the double movements of Fazl Rahman, go back to the Quranic context understand the intention and the wisdom and the purpose 
but come to today and maybe you can reformulate some of the rulings. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I know that I mean, is very, yeah. very yeah. popular among in the classical. Yeah, no, no, not popular at all. It's not. It's definitely not something I don't. Yes, and that's why we're discussing this. at all, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, I know you're getting your ideas from, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, uh, here's this thing, Dr. Ali. Probably majority of the Muslims out there will be agreeing with you and they will be happy and having their lives and from Morocco to Indonesia. But also, as you see in Zaytuna, there are people asking different questions. And, and I think maybe they will be more persuaded with the Fazl Rahmani approach. And maybe we will be this big ummah with different interpretations. Like there's Orthodox Judaism, yes, but there's something called Reform Judaism. And at least that keeps some Jews still inside Judaism rather than going out. And I would think that these, some of the reformist interpretations that I'm trying to articulate is there so that uh, we keep the big tent even bigger, maybe even big, yeah, yeah. Big, more diverse. Mm -hmm. uh, but as, as, as with you, I'm concerned about only the future of Islam and the Ummah, and, and we are all trying to... Yeah, no, and I, and I totally understand that. I, and I understand it. And that's, that's, um, that's one of the reasons that I think it's important to have these type of conversations is that for people are... I don't believe that anyone intentionally wants to undermine their Islam. I mean, any person who's like proud to be a Muslim, right? You know, even if they have views that we would consider to be um, heretical or, or views that are um, not mainstream or, uh, 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 you understand what I'm going with that, you know, I don't think that anyone I, that, that actually goes in that direction really wants to sort of break away from Islam or want to misguide people, right? But it does happen, right? It happens in spite of their sincerity. And, um, and I do think that we need to have more engagements like this, you know, so we can, okay, well, let's try to understand where they come from. What are the things that led them to those beliefs? What are their, what's their context, right? From which they're, they're operating. Um, and uh, um, uh, one thing that's beautiful about many of the great scholars, like including, um, you know, Ghazali, Ibn Taymiyyah, Abu Hassan Ashari, is that towards the end of their lives, they made clear that, you know, that they themselves they, you know, regretted, I guess you would say, you know, the issue of takfir, you know, that they didn't want to classify anyone who embraced or claimed Islam as being a non-Muslim, right, you know. And Shafi, one of his famous statements, is that the only people that we consider to be kufar are the khattabiyah, you know, which are people who consider lying to be permissible, right? So, so it was only them, like he says, you know, but generally it's like, you know, we don't declare anyone who claims to be a Muslim to be uh, to be a, a, be a, a non-Muslim, right? I mean, we don't kick them out of Islam. And of course, and that in itself is not to say that we tolerate everything either, that we don't challenge view, viewpoints which we consider to be um, uh, views that that go against our faith, right? right? We do still need to challenge those things from our brethren and from those from the outside as well, right? But um, engagement is, is a better way than just simply sort of antagonizing uh, from the outside, because I mean, there are some people. I I, I I sent you an email about this before that there were some people that were maligning you, you know, certain groups, you know, and I and I and, and I didn't share any of those things with you. And some people felt like, okay, I I shouldn't be <clears throat> as cordial towards you as I am. I said, no, no, I can't do that. I can't be, <laughs> you know, um, antagonistic. I can't um, 
uh, I don't feel this prophetic that that's not what we're supposed to do. We should be trying to win people over, right? And, and so, and this is again part of my critique of you with regard to <laughs> some of the things you've written. Is that when are you going to start trying to win people over, right? You know, so that's <laughs> uh, that's part of it as well. You know, because seeing wow. that sometimes it's more like, hey, you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to put the idea. I ha- who cares what what they have to say? You know, and so, but alhamdulillah, we're able to have a conversation. Exactly. And I appreciate your uh, kindness, certainly, and, uh, you know, channeling those bad comments away. And and I think, unfortunately, one uh, problem in the Islamic landscape, especially online, is a lot of people are trying to, you know, demonize a little bit group, which things a little bit different from them. And and that goes on and on. And I think people turn religion into a kind of narcissism vehicle instead of, you know, modesty and, 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 and wisdom and all that. I mean, just let me finally read one line. I mean, I agree with things. I mean, I, I could just, at the end of the book, I say, you know, there were ideas of Mutazla and philosopher, which were maybe important, but, and I say at the end, we Muslims should have preserved the plurality of ideas. So these different strains could keep debating to learn from each other and also to refine themselves. Like, it's good that you have Mutazila Ashura discussions. Maybe, you know, maybe Mutazila got something right a little bit here. Maybe Ashura has got something right there. And ultimately, maybe these will evolve into more mature traditions in themselves. And I think that's what, and that's freedom allows us that, right? I mean, we, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation in a theocracy that imposes one of our doctrines on, on, on others, right? So that's, that's why I appreciate freedom. Freedom is the key to be able to move forward with the issues of Ummah. Uh, and I'm grateful to Paul, you know, for bringing us today and patiently, you know, uh, really uh, giving us the time for doing this. Uh, and I again, I, I didn't enjoy every line in your criticism, but I, I know your goodwill. And I think we, we it, it triggered some interesting thoughts. So uh-huh. therefore, I, I appreciate that. I think it's, uh, my response, I hope, cleared some of the points that I'm trying to make. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's keep uh, talking this, inshallah. Maybe over tea or some after Juma. We did Juma together once. Inshallah, we can do it again. Maybe inshallah. Okay. Appreciate it. That's a, a lovely conclusion uh, on g- goodwill between people. Thank you very much for that uh, to Mustafa Akiol and Dr. Abdullah Ali. Um, I'll just throw my own two cents in. I, I, I'm very keen on this particular book called Slavery and Islam by Jonathan A.C. Brown, uh, another American professor of Islamic civilization at Georgetown University. This has been highly critically appraised. If you want to get into the, the details, uh, the meat of the issues in terms of the textual issues and the moral issues as well, and, and why until only recent times what was it see, as slavery seen as morally abhorrent and, uh, and, and must be rejected. This is actually a fairly recent view historically, amazingly. Um, I recommend that book. And I've, I've already appraised this book uh, by Mustafa Akiol, The Islamic Jesus, How the King of the Jews Became a Prophet of the Muslims. I think that's an excellent book as well. And lastly, I will put, uh, as I mentioned before, I will put the links to um, Dr. Abdullah Ali's criticism or critique of the book in question and Mustafa Akiol's robust response. They're both very robust articles. Um they, they certainly say very candidly what they believe, but there is a spirit uh, of, of uh, respect, uh, nevertheless, which clearly has come out uh, in this conversation, which I think can teach us all about how to have respectful disagreement and respectful engagement with those with whom we disagree. Um, unfortunately, there's too little of that respect uh, in the world at the moment, online and offline as well. So thank you both very much indeed for, for and it's been education uh, for me and I'm sure for many of the viewers 
as well. So thank you. Until next time. Thank you, Paul. Thank you again. Assalamu alaikum. Thanks so much.